All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Welcome. Welcome to everyone viewing today. We're going to discuss whether or not you are inappropriately indoctrinating your children, because as we all know, the indoctrination of your children is something that should be done by the government and probably teachers unions, right? But if you're doing it, well, that's, that's bad. So we're going to discuss today. And, and this is, this is based off of uh, Chris from our, our community chat. He, he recommended, we had some other people too, kind of recommend something similar. He's like, look, why don't you guys do an episode talking about how you can, you can talk to your children, how you can work with your children to legitimately understand your worldview, understand your way of thinking and to be able to think critically because bottom line is that there's a lot of people offering ideas to your children nowadays, sometimes coming from places that you never anticipated and certainly didn't come from those places five, 10, 15 years ago. And people want to make sure their kids are prepared. And, you know, the obvious answer from some parents is just, we'll pull your kids out of those environments. And the response we always get is I can't, or I can't afford to, or I'm just not in a position where I can be able to do that, but I still want to be involved. And I still want to adequately prepare my young children. I want to prepare my children in middle school and high school. And then I want to also prepare my kids. So when they go off to college or the world or whatever it is, I can be confident that they at least understand what they believe, why they believe it and feel confident in their ability to be able to address questions and talk about it in, in a way that, that has a degree of intellectual rigor. And, and again, that, that overall confidence that what I believe is not just something that mom and dad told me to believe, but it's actually rooted in something that is true and accurate and has evidence to back it up. So thank you very much to Chris, because that is what we're going to be talking about today. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Christian, you made a post in our community chat, I believe it was yesterday, letting everybody know that the month of July is a record-setting month for the podcast. We want to thank everyone who's a new listener and those who have been with us for a long time. We appreciate you so much. If you haven't already, we just published the Victor Marks episode, uh, Nick's interview with him on Nick's channel yesterday. It was a great interview. I'll link that down in the description here shortly. But if you haven't already, go watch that. It'll be really great. And if, also, if you want to join our community chat, you can do so by clicking the link in the description of this episode. We'd love to meet you there. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, a reasonably good guy with us back in the studio, back. my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, Tina. I've missed everyone. Yep. She yeah. went out to go get milk and, and came back. We're very happy about that. <laughs> 
kids. No, she went out to go get 70 pounds of honey. Yeah, 72, <laughs> 72 pounds, but just kidding. And then, of course, we have our resident historian and political prognosticator who we are still working on a quippier nickname for Christian Hines. Uh, purveyor of doom. I think we've no, already got purveyor no, of doom. No, that's not going to be. I, 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 we need to be moving more towards the white pill. Not the black, the pill. white, but we need to not reinforce black pill Christian. Yeah. All right. So it, keep again, keep that in mind, audience. We've had some good suggestions. We're mulling them over. Scholar of Doom was one, but again, we're we're trying Scholar to keep something more is positive. The best. That's good. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nick Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one yes, that sir. doesn't like central banking. That's right. Let's get right. right into it. So here's what I here's what I wanted here's what I want to discuss. Um. <laughs> As I kind of said in, in the hook for this, right, there's a lot of people that have this attitude that if you're directing your children and in, in, um, in, in raising them to think a certain way or believe a certain thing, well, then isn't that also indoctrination? And you could argue that it is, but it's really a question of what are you, what are you actually raising your child to believe and on what foundation are you laying this belief system? Right? Are you teaching them to cr think critically about things? Are you, are you teaching them to be able to question things and to explore ideas and freedom of inquiry? Or, or are you just you know, again, no, this is the only way to think because mom and dad say so. Now, I will say this, regardless of what you're doing, I get pretty irritated when all of a sudden government officials or members of powerful unions come in and say, well, this is why we need the government, um, you know, government administration of education and so that they can come in. And it's not all just about education. It's about understanding things with respect to social interaction, right? This is one of the common refrains we always hear directed toward homeschoolers. What about socialization? Now, look, I'm going to tell you right now, if, if the reason why you're sending your kids to a government-administered school, better known as public schools, but that's what it is, it's a government-administered school, it may be because you think they have a, a, a bunch of good resources that are good for them that you don't feel like you can adequately replicate. It may be that there's uh, connections and things like that that they can utilize in order to get on a good path to go to the university they want to. Like, I get it. Like, this is not me sitting here judging you for making that decision. It may be something that you're a single parent, and quite frankly, you cannot afford, nor do you have the time to be able to do that because you've got to work. Like, I'm sympathetic to all of that. But if the reason you're if the reason you're sending your kids to public school is because of the wonderful socialization opportunities, I'm going to tell you right there, I'm a, I'm a little skeptical at that point. I'm a little skeptical at that point because there's a lot of things going on within our public school systems right now that are very harmful. This came up in a debate that we recently had in the Virginia General Assembly where we were being told over and over and over again, this idea that there's sexually explicit materials within your kid's school is ridiculous. And this is all just about conservatives wanting to ban books, which was a funny argument given that the bill that we were discussing didn't ban a single book. All it did was said if there was sexually explicit materials that this public school library had to have on a website for the school a list of those books and then give parents the option to opt out of letting their child check those books out, right? That's all the bill did. And then the patron of the bill proceeded to show book after book after book after book, which didn't just have, again, literary descriptions of especially sexual acts. It actually had pictures, pictures of, you know, again, a whole host of sexual activities to include sexual activities between adults and minors, right? Acts of violence too. And all he was saying was, is like, you don't get to tell me this isn't happening because each one of these books was in a public school system, a, a district within Virginia. So again, didn't ban anything. All it said was you got to make a list of what's, what's there and you got to give parents an uh, option to not allow their child to check that out. We didn't get a single vote from anybody on the other side of the aisle. So 
Whenever somebody tells you these things aren't happening or these things aren't taking place within your school system, I can tell you as a sitting member of an education committee in a state legislature, yes, they actually are in many, many places. Not everywhere, but in many places. And so you do need to be aware of this, right? And even when some of the more extreme stuff isn't happening, you do need to appreciate the fact that the vast majority of teaching certifications, all these things that are going on across the country have all been rooted in a version of, of education and, and uh, you know, methods for teaching, which are heavily influenced by a lot of leftist communities, whether it's postmodernism, whether it's critical theory, whether it's deconstructionism. And you can argue all day long when I think this is good or bad, but you should at least know that that is the predominant theory within a lot of these institutions. And if your child is going to go there, right, and maybe you find yourself in a situation where you, where you, don't, you legitimately don't have an alternative, right? You still want to make sure that your kids are prepared for the environment that they're going into to the degree, the best degree that you possibly can. So let's go ahead and start off with the, the number one thing that we like to emphasize. By the way, hi, Abby. I saw your comment. <laughs> um, and that is setting, setting the groundwork with your child. And that doesn't start when they're 10 or 12 or 15. Setting and establishing a good and trusting relationship with your child, I, I would argue, begins immediately. Uh, it, it begins in the hospital, right? And you're probably thinking to yourself, gosh, they're not even going to remember any of that. What, what do you mean by that? And, and I'm a big believer. I have three children, 20, 17, and 15. I'm a big believer, and this is something I, I want Tina to elaborate on as well, that um, if, even from those, those earliest moments, even if, you're, even if your 14-year-old is not remembering what happened, you know, day one or day two or whatever it is, right? Um, there, there are there are short-term memories being created with your child from a very, very young age. So even if they don't remember it 10 years later, believe me, they, what happened that day, they remember the next day. And these things build on one another. And I think sometimes we forget that. They build on one another and they create impressions in a child's mind. And so it, is, there, is their interaction with you when they're, when they're that small, is it, is it scary? Is it neglectful? Is it abusive? Is it loving? Is it cherishing? Is it playful? Like what is it? Because, you know, again, even if they don't remember it at 14, at 14 weeks, they might remember it at 15 weeks. And this is establishing patterns over time. And here's the way I'll, I'll explain this. I'll explain this through a a quick story. Uh, when, when my, when my oldest daughter was, and this has happened with all of my kids, but, um, when they're probably around like, they'll say three or four, right? They're really at that point where now they can do some damage, right? When, when they're like one or two, they're crawling, they're rolling over and stuff like that. They can do a little bit of damage, but they're not necessarily doing a, a ton of damage. When they start walking and climbing, oh my gosh, man, right? And you're, they're not at an age where you can always explain to them like why they shouldn't run out into the middle of the street. You're not, you're not sitting down with your three-year-old going, okay, um, Lily, let me explain this to you. Um, there's this thing called physics, right? And then, and when you, when you look at the size and the mass of the car and the direction that it is moving, they've already fallen asleep. They've already fallen asleep. They're already dreaming of unicorns. They're not listening. You can't do that. What you can say is don't go out in the middle of the road. Don't run out on the road. You play right here. I'm watching. Don't, don't do that. And then what do they do? They start to, they start to kind of test those boundaries, and then what do you do? You pick them up, and, and I'm sorry, some people might disagree with this. I'd give her a little swat. I did this with all my kids. Wasn't abusive, didn't it? You know, but it was enough. To, now people say, well, why did, why did you do that? Because at that age, they're not old enough to understand the reasons why daddy is telling them don't go in there. 
But they do need to associate the road with pain. They associate the road now with pain and danger. Now, here's what's interesting. There's two types of responses your kid can have to that. Your, your kid can either recoil and not want anything to do with you because now they, or, and here's what I experienced with all my kids, when I would have to like swat them for something like that, again, not hard, but enough to where they knew I was serious. They always wanted to come. They wanted a hug from daddy, right? They didn't want to run away. They didn't want to hide in their room. They wanted daddy to, because they knew that daddy loved them. They weren't sure. They weren't quite sure, understand why daddy was so upset about this, but they knew that I loved them. And they wanted that in that moment, their, their, their desire was not to pull away. It was to get closer because they wanted that reinforcement. No, no, daddy loves you, sweetheart. I, I don't, I don't want you to get hurt. Okay. Do you understand? And they're looking and they're kind of crying and they're like, you know, burying their head in your shoulder and it's really, really sweet and you end up feeling kind of bad. But by the same token, you know that what you're attempting to do at that moment is protect them from something that could be catastrophic to them in a way that they cannot cognitively understand at that point. But that I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in this. If you have taken the time, if you have taken the time when your kids are very young to spend that time to play with them to where they associate with someone that loves them and, you know, and there is nothing more wonderful than, than coming home and, and hearing, you know, that little squeal of delight that daddy and, and want to come and, and jump and play and, and show you the picture that they drew and everything else. If you've established that bond and trust, when you need to discipline, even at an early age, the response will not be to recoil, it will be to lean more in because they, again, they're not quite sure what's, why they can't do that but they know you're serious about it and they know you love you because you've established that groundwork. And so now they're more apt to listen to why they shouldn't be doing something dangerous. All right. Does that make sense? A, a way that I would look at it is um, to go back to what you were bringing up earlier about, you know, they're not going to remember when they're one, right. Or two. It's, it's not necessarily that they're not going to remember when they're one or one or two. It's that you want it to be when they start forming memories it begins with them having a, a great relationship with you. And, and that starts before they can start forming memories. You, you want to lay that groundwork yeah. ahead of time. So that way their earliest memories are of a loving parent that, that cares about them and wants to do things with them and wants to play with them. And, and in fact, you actually have an article brought up that, that challenges that. And it's, it's really pathetic. Um, what, what, what certain people are now saying and, you can't help but feel like that that there's increasingly just a growing movement out there that kind of wants to set kids up for failure um, and, and kind of institutionalize that failure. And and it, 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 I'm not a parent, but I, I, I'm also not terribly far removed from being a, a, a kid myself, right? It was, what, 10, 15 years ago that I was one. And I can say that, you know, from my own childhood, and I grew up in a divorced household, um, I can say in my own childhood that, you know, I, I noticed when my parents weren't around, but I also noticed when they were mm -hmm. and it stuck with me when they would, you know, play with me and interact with me and, and, you know, demonstrate that they loved me. And I think we all kind of forget about that as we get older, right? We forget about our childhood increasingly as, as you grow older. But if you think back for a minute to, to when you were a kid, mm -hmm. You probably remember some of those instances and yeah. it, it, it subconsciously has an impact on the rest of your life. It, it, it really can't be understated. I feel like, no, I, I, I think it starts very young and what, and look, we had a challenge to over, Tina and I had a challenge to overcome. And that was, um, you know, when, when Lily was born, Lily was born and I almost immediately started the special forces qualification course. 
So I, w- I was gone for, you know, eight weeks at a time, then 12 weeks at a time, then four weeks at a time. And so th- there was this constant leaving and then, and, and then coming back and re-engaging. And, and one of the things, and, and this really became, really became difficult when I was actually in first special forces group and our deployments to Iraq started and our deployments to other countries started to be able to do training with foreign militaries and things like that to where Luke was born and, you know, not that long after I deployed to Iraq and, and I, I remember this thing of coming home and <laughs> I really think of coming home and it was the, the first night that I was, you know, back at home. And, um, so Luke's Luke was in bed with us and Luke looks over at me. Like Luke wakes I up in the he morning. Was nursing at the time. He, he was, he was nursing at the time. Luke, Luke was like, he kind of wakes up, looks at mommy, smiles, rolls over, sees me. And it's like, what's this dude doing here? And I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing here? The whole reason you're here is because I've been here. (laughs) But he had this, he had this look like you realize this is mine, right? This is, I don't know what you're doing here. This is my mommy. Stay over there. You stay right there. And you know, everything will be cool. I don't want to throw down with you, old man. Right? This is the, this is the look he gave me. Um, but I, I will, I will say this. One of the things that was most uh, powerful when, when Allie was born, I missed, I was there for Allie's birth. I missed her first birthday, her first Christmas, her first Thanksgiving. I missed, I missed all of it. I was in, I was in Iraq again. I, I've always, even from when the kids were very little, though, the reason why I was able to maintain such a good relationship with my children is because of Tina. Um, it's because Tina, you know, constantly took opportunity. Like she made him shirts with Daddy's, you know, face on it and stuff like that. And and you know, they'd go out, and I was in uniform, and so people you know, would ask about the picture on their shirt and they'd talk about their daddy because Tina was constantly reinforcing that your, your daddy loves you and your daddy's got an important job to do and he's trying to protect us all. And, um, but don't you ever doubt that your, your, your daddy loves you. And they would send me videos and every once in a while I'd get to send something back and Tina would just make sure that they, um, they saw it. And so even though we were dealing with something that was, was fairly significant and that you would think would drastically, um, impair, our ability to, to maintain a really good relationship at young ages um, because of Tina, that didn't happen. Um, and because Tina worked so hard when I would come back home to reintegrate me into like my place within the home. And that was difficult for her. This was not, I mean, she's having to oh, run it's an every, upheaval every single time. She's having to run everything, you know, as, as, as almost essentially a single parent, and then I come home and I, you know, and it's, it's finding your place again. So I, I want people to understand that this really is an effort between both you and your spouse um, to, to reinforce that positive relationship, but it, it can be done even in what you might consider to be extreme circumstances. Okay. <laughs> Let's go into the next part here. And by the way, we please ask us questions. If you and the audience have questions, specific things that you would like us to address on this, we can. That's kind of dealing with infants. We also talk about this idea of prescription versus explanation. Um, one of the things that that we see, and I actually saw this when I was teaching at a homeschool co-op, is that sometimes parents, uh, because they're so busy and they've got so many things to do, it, it's difficult to sometimes properly place the difference from going into prescription from explanation. So prescription is do this because I told you, you know, again, I'm not explaining physics to my three-year-old. I'm telling her you do not run into the road and there's consequences if you do, but there is a certain age where now you do start to, you know, be a little bit more explanatory on why they can't do something. I remember that age where it was really, it was this interesting (laughs) transition, right? Where 
you actually could have a conversation with your child and you could recognize that they understood it. They understood the whole conversation. And that's a weird, that's a moment where you're like, oh, you're not a baby anymore. And so you're like excited about the fact that you can have conversations with your kid now. But then you're also like a little bit nostalgic and sad that the babyhood's over. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's, uh, well, that and when they start getting into the why, 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 and you've got to do things. Um, that that's, t- I mean, believe me, there were times where I probably should have explained something to my kid where I didn't have time where it was like, because I told you to, right? Because yeah. I said, this is what you need to do. And, and we, we would try to make a point. Now I'm not saying I, I, we pulled this off every time, but we would try to make a point to explain, but also differentiate between when your child is, is genuinely looking for an explanation and understanding versus when they're stalling or when they're just being a pill. <laughs> and, and it's usually easy to see when all of a sudden I saw this one joke once that, um, you know, at, at bedtime, my kids suddenly turn into thirsty philosophers that need a hug. Yes, they do. <laughs> oh they need 57 drinks of water. They need to be loved and cuddled. Yeah. L- Lily was actually, Lily had eczema, so she always wanted her back scratched. And so then you'd have to like carefully. Yeah like rub her back because you didn't want to like flare up the eczema. Yeah. Oh yeah. So she'd be like scream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. But I think, I think the important <laughs> part is to remember that it, as they, once they start asking why and they legitimately want to know explaining things to them is, is, is a very important part of that process. But again, it doesn't mean that because one of the other things you're also teaching with the explanation is I've explained this to you. I've explained it to you in a way that you understand. If you keep asking me why, 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 now you're, you're not actually asking for an explanation. Again, you're stalling or you're doing something else or you're playing some sort of game. Um, so I think, I, think that's all, I think that's all important. Um, so, Nick, we, we've done an episode on the battle for the male mind, the battle for the female mind, and now we're doing the battle for our children's mind. Yeah. And obviously, there's a huge push in society today to direct children in a certain way. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think what we're doing here is we're analyzing things that we should take into consideration when raising our kids. Obviously, Christian and I have not gotten to that point yet, but we are learning and preparing for that time. Um, But these are the things we should be thinking about in order to raise the children up in the way that we think they should go, right? Yeah, this is Hamilton telling me that he doesn't think I set this up well enough before we started going to the explanations. Well, speaking of that, (laughs) allow me to dogpile. Um, (laughs) We have an article here from the New York Times that I I do want to bring up briefly since we're still relatively early in the episode. Yeah. Because I feel like that this actually applies to many of the points that I know that you want to bring up in this episode at many different points. this thing from the New York Times is is titled, um, and Hamilton, let me, let me know if, if you can't bring it up. Oh, it's, up. it's titled, Don't Play With Your Kids Seriously. I have three kids under 10 who don't expect or even want to play with me. It took some practice, but over time, we've all learned to be better off doing our own thing. I, okay, is it me or does the New York Times just pull the worst people in society and then hand them a megaphone and say, here you go. Here's here's your 15 minutes of fame, your opportunity to, to publish something in our newspaper. How could anybody look at this headline and then the subtext below it and think, yeah, that's great parenting advice. When, and here's the part that blows my mind. Uh, it's a woman writing this. It's a mother. I was stunned when I, I learned I thought, that. I thought for sure this was going to be a dad writing this. Now, now hey, look. What do you expect? Yeah. You should just be happy she didn't have it ripped apart in the womb. That's that's where she's coming from. I, I think she she goes on to like 
heavily caveat some of her her stuff within the headline and whatnot, but the, the theme is still the same. She's saying like, no, it's better for everyone to, you know, be on the peripheral and let kids. Obviously there are times when your kids need to be able to just play and, and play with other kids and the whole deal. And they don't want you constantly interfering or whatnot. But I, I think this, this article takes it to an extreme degree. And I think Tina's point is, is well taken. It's that they really, there really has been this push to kind of treat motherhood. They, they, they always, whenever they're called to task on the fact that they tend to denigrate motherhood or, or um, let, let's say reduce the overall importance of it. It's like, no, that's not what we're saying. We're just saying, okay, yeah, but when, <laughs> when a mother, when, when, a, when a woman is asked what she does and she says, oh, I, I manage the home or I'm a wife and a mother. Nowadays, she gets this look like, oh, is that it? Just. Yeah. Just that. Yeah. Tina's, I mean, Tina's experienced this before um, with people. And and it's, I don't think it's shocking though, that you get to this point where it's like, well, no, no, I, I do all these other things. And so they don't, they don't need me. They don't need me to play with them. I will tell you that obviously your kids can get more independent with respect to their playtime and stuff like that as they get older. But this idea that you got three kids under the age of 10 and all of you have fallen into this convenient little thing where, well, they, they don't want, they don't, they really don't want me there. Well, that's oh, because sure you're that's no it. fun to play with. Yeah. <laughs> that's because you're no fun to play with. I'll tell you what, you know, I I remember I felt really, really awful this one time. I was just, I was on one of these cleaning sprees. I was trying to clean everything. And Allie was like, do you want to have a tea party? And I said, okay, when I'm done cleaning this stuff, right, that I was working on. And I kind of walked by her door and she was sitting at her little table with it all set up, just waiting for me. Yeah. And I went, yeah, the cleaning can wait. Yeah. And, and, but I, I had been cleaning for probably 30 minutes after she had asked and I told her, Hey, wait till I'm done. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that she was really truly going to just sit there and wait for me. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, there's going to come a day where she doesn't want to do this with me anymore. And I can clean. Cleaning is always going to be there. Yeah. Like it, it's not helping her to have, you know, all the laundry done. Well, right you, now. you look at stuff like this where it's, it's almost this New York Times article. Where it's almost this, this, I think, lack of understanding that what, well, no, my kids don't even really want me to do that. Again, I think it's okay. Did you suck it's at playing? It's because you suck at playing. Yeah, it, that's definitely not true. Uh, I mean, I, I will. I am shocked. Either that or they're so used to being neglected that they've given up. Yeah. I, I, I'm actually shocked at how much, um, well, I, I did this this year. It was the first year I ever did this, but I, I was thinking about it and I, I was probably getting a little bit nostalgic because my oldest daughter just got engaged and my son's 17 and, um, you know, and my youngest daughter's 15. And so this year for Father's Day, I was like, you know, daddy, what do you want for Father's Day? I said, I want you to each write me a note and I want you to tell me one thing that you really appreciate about our relationship. Could have been a, an experience, could have been whatever. And one thing that you would like to see me do better. Um, because I'm always going to be their father, even, even as they get older. And what, what kind of shocked me was the, the things that they would point to that you might've thought were just, you know, maybe trivial or, or, or not that, um, grandiose or not, not some sort of, you know, a, a enormous gesture that when they, when you asked them, what was something, what was a moment where they're like, this was something that I really appreciated that I love doing. And I wish we could do more. And what could we do better? It was always more time. It was more dedicated time doing those things that, that built those sorts of memories. And so this, this notion that, um, and, and I really think society pushes this hard that everyone else is more influential on their kids than their parents. It's actually garbage. Like, well, how do I compete with, you know, their friend group and all that? Well, I don't know. How involved were you? 
Yeah. That, Nick, Nick, that actually gets me to... You, you guys were, were talking about this article a second ago, but I, I especially on the playful side, but I think part of the problem with this article and, and the message that it's pushing is that it's more than just don't play with your kids. What it's saying in between the lines is don't be involved in your kid's life. Yeah. It's so much more than just playing. It's, it's what type of relationship are you going to have with your, with your children? Yeah. And this message is basically, you're not going to have one. You're just going to, you know, put a roof over their head basically. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, give them dinner or something like that. And this like absent minded parenthood is on one extreme. I think there's two terrible extremes here at play that have really hurt children. I think over the last like 20, 25 years, speaking as somebody who was growing up as a kid in the early two thousands. And on one extreme, there's this don't be involved at all. I, this, this narrative basically. Yeah. But on the other extreme, there's this, and I told you this before we we started going live, it's this benevolent coddling that exists. Yes. <laughs> and those are two separate extremes, although in some ways it's almost like horseshoe theory, where in some ways they they have more in common with each other than you might think, and that yeah. they're, they're both very destructive in terms of that parent-child relationship. And so in the context of like this episode, the whole like battle for the children's mind, I keep going back to the episode that you guys had with Gina on the battle for the female mind. And then the episode that we all had together on the battle for the male mind. It really feels like that. Correct me if I'm wrong. It really feels like that society is basically saying, Hey, the things that worked for the last, you know, 5,000 years of human history in terms of like healthy families and that relationship between parents and their kids or between parents themselves, the husband wife relationship, all these things that we've learned from thousands of years of civilization. Yeah. Just chuck it out the window like overnight. And so like we all were on the same page until five minutes ago. And now we're going to throw out thousands of years of well-established traditions on how to raise children and, and set them up for success because the number one goal of parenthood is to, to raise kids to not be losers. It's to raise them to be (laughs) successful. I was like, yeah, you're trying, you're trying to raise your kids to be people that you would actually like to hang out with when they're adults. Yeah. If you don't like your kids, that's your fault. Yeah. Like, well, cause you made them what they are. I mean, or at least you had the opportunity to make them what they are, but you chose not to, you know, you chose, yeah. you chose not to. So now you don't like your kids. Well, we, I mean, obviously at some point people make their own choices. So I'm not saying that kids have, that have sort of lost their way, um, somewhere down the line, I, I'm not saying that's your fault because at some point they make their own choices. But, um, yeah, if your kid is like whiny and annoying, there's a reason, man. Yeah, it's Joe because Schmo, because you, you have caved to that. Um. So speaking of all of that, we just had a question that I think kind of capstones. Oh, this is what great. I was setting up earlier. Joe yeah. Schmo said, "Question: What is benevolent coddling? I'm wondering if I'm guilty of that." This was actually a term that I think we coined five minutes before the show started, yeah, <laughs> or think, the Christian I coin. Think, <laughs> I think, like, if I were to give like a definition to that, it would be parents who. Do not allow their kids to navigate navigate adversity. I, yeah, I think that is. I think that's an excellent summary of it. it this question started off when um, Christian was asking. He's like, you know, he goes, I was, I was explaining to someone that I think it's actually gotten uh, harder to be a kid. And he goes, whenever I, well, I mean, Christian, do you want to kind of relay the? Yeah. yeah. So. When I was growing up as a kid, I remember trying to make the argument. I can't remember what the context was, but I remember trying to make the argument to my parents that like, it's just harder to be a kid than it was when you were a kid. And they didn't accept that at all. And they had good reasons to do so. Yeah, because physically it wasn't harder. Yeah, because they were bringing up like, you know, well, technology has improved tremendously. Yeah. 
and and we have all these things that I didn't have these things. It's like twelve up. year olds used to work in coal mines. I think you're all right they, there. They weren't Sparky. that extreme. <laughs> they weren't that extreme. But it was basically in that. I had to mold. walk home uphill both ways yeah. in the snow. I remember at the time feeling kind of <laughs> upset that that I felt like they didn't understand where I was trying to get. It wasn't that that material conditions were were somehow worse than it was in the seventies or eighties. That's obviously not true. Like my iPhone here, you know, has more computing power than, you know, what we use to land on the moon, right? So like on on one basis, obviously it's easier to be a kid than it was 40 years ago from a material perspective. Yeah. But we're not materialists here. Yeah. And when you think about the mental components and, and in some ways maybe the spiritual components, certainly that, but like when you think about all these other things on 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 the, the sociological side and the psychological side of it, I do feel like that there is definitely some truth to it, that it is harder to be a kid than it was 30, 40 years ago. But it's difficult to explain that to somebody that was growing up as a kid 30 to 40 years ago because they're thinking about it from like material conditions and technology and standard of living. And yeah. and and so that gets into the whole benevolent coddling thing. And that at the same time that it's being harder, quote unquote, to be a kid, and I know that you take potential issue with me using that phrase, and, and I'll let well, you get to it in just a second. It's not that it was harder being a kid. It was harder to become an adult. Yes. At the same time, it was yeah. it was harder to become a kid. And it, Tina just it just hit the nail on the head. We have all these things like school counselors and you just need to be open to your feelings and everybody gets a trophy. And yeah. and all like the way that they raised kids in my generation, it's society as general. I think my parents actually did a relatively good job raising me, even though I grew up in a divorced household. But society in general was pushing this this form of what I call benevolent coddling that in some ways I think stunted a lot of kids from growing up to become adults and becoming strong men and women. So I'm going to, I'm going to posit two theories here. Um, So one is the benevolent coddling side, right? Like if you look at child psychology and and Dr. Spock and all these ideas that were starting to come out in the eighties, but were really being implemented in the nineties and beyond that, I was born in 79 and I would say that there's, there's almost like this subset of a generation born from 75 to 85. that had this kind of similar experience where we were, we were born before the internet. We spent a lot of our formative young lives and in, in, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. At yeah. Not until our teen years. We didn't use it on a regular basis or anything like that. And even and, then it was like, you got to pay for your minutes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And you know, it's, I remember having a pager. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we went through this thing where technology was interesting to us and we weren't afraid of it and we thought it was cool and it was developing. But by the same token, we, we still knew what it was like, um, you know, to grow up a little bit more like maybe rough and tumble or whatnot. Or, you know, my, my mom, like when if I fall down and skin my knee, it was like, you know, a buck up buttercup, you know, you got stuff to do. I mean, she'd still put, you know, <laughs> she still put a bandaid on it, the whole deal. But it was this whole idea like, you know, you don't need to cry over that. That stuff just happens. Let's go. So there, there was this point of, I think. What, I, I'm sorry. I'm reminded right now of the other side of your family that every time like one of the kids would fall or something, they'd cheer to try to get them not to cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it worked like they'd get up and they'd be like, yay, instead of crying. But it doesn't work so well when somebody else gets hurt oh my and the gosh. kid starts clapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, <laughs> my, so my sister started clapping when a kid like fell down some stairs and like really hurt himself. But she didn't know. She thought it was helping. But the point is, <laughs> yeah, the, the point the point is, is that if you were growing up in that era, there was still this idea where it was there was no conception of playing peewee soccer and not keeping score. Right. There was no conception of everybody gets a trophy. And, and there was this idea within a combination of child psychology and this desire to protect children 
to the point where we wrapped them in bubble wrap and just told them how how great and wonderful and special and how you know super their feelings were yeah. and, and they were just so beautiful and wonderful just the way they oh, were. Oh, your feelings are valid. I, I, let I'm, me tell you right now, sometimes <laughs> their feelings are not valid and they don't need them validated oh, by you. Oh, heck no. You know what's half so the funny? Feeling, half the feelings your small children have, right, or, or your children in general have, are just that they're like these these feelings that pop into their head. There's these ideas and and there there is there is a, a big push toward this idea of like self pity or oh my gosh and they need to be told yeah hey guess what buck up you know the the world's not fair sweetheart all right so now go clean your room what, you know what's so funny is I feel like that we overly coddled children on a physical basis an emotional basis yeah but there but then a lot of parents just totally abandoned raising their kids to be able to differentiate between right and wrong. Well, yeah, and, because, and so like, because like there that was, was too mean. much parenting in one way. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think about like the over-sexualization of kids that's now reaching a crescendo yeah. as we saw with last month's, you know, pride month stuff. Like in, in some ways it's like we absolutely over coddled our, 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 you know, children on a physical and emotional basis. Yes. Getting back to everything you just said there. You know, we don't keep score. Everything's about feelings. and, and yeah, We're just here. To, it's not about who wins or loses. It's just but about then it's everyone like, having a good time. But, but You know then, what's a good time? Winning. Winning's, <laughs> winning's a good time. But then on the other hand, oh, yeah, no problem exposing kids to sexual content yeah. before they're ready. No problem pushing some of this, this just kind of grotesque moral behavior and and not equipping them to to have a, a properly functioning moral compass when they get older. Yeah. And I feel like that combination of totally abandoning your responsibility as a parent in one field and and being basically a helicopter parent on another sa- side. Oh, yeah. well, they, they sound contradictory, but but together we we overparented in some places and we completely abandoned our responsibilities in other places. And now we look at it again, my generation, the very tail end of it. I'm the very end of millennial beginning of, of Zoomer. Same thing with Hamilton. And so we look at, at the Zillennials, they call them, and then Zoomers and now Gen Alpha that's coming after them that are still really little kids. And I can't help but feel like that so many of them are, are like, like we, we think about like, why do so many of them have like mental health problems or why do so many of them have, have social Because they problems? were never trained. They were never trained to deal with adversity. It was yeah. always like, and, and you couldn't have any sort of moral standard whatsoever because that was judgmental. And those are two separate things. Right. And, and you're looking at it. So they've created so, a disaster. So that's why I'm saying like, it, it this sounds, this sounds, um, let me put it this way. Kids that actually had more problems that they had to overcome Right. I'm, I'm not talking about like drastic, like, you know, abuse and things like that, but just problems that maybe, maybe it was poverty. Maybe it was not having things. Maybe it was dealing with, with various issues and whatnot. Maybe it was, maybe it was, you know, dealing with fights in schools or something like that. Kids that have stuff that they had overcome that they were able to overcome on some level, even if it was just small victories here and there, seem to be more equipped to deal with the real world than the kids that were constantly told how wonderful and special and, and great they were and how if there was ever a problem, well, my little Billy wouldn't do that. My little Sally wouldn't do that. No, your little Billy and your little Sally did because you've raised them to be punks. And now they're a terror to your teachers and they're a terror to everyone else and nobody wants to be around your kids. And, and you're just convinced that, you know, so yeah, I think we moved into this realm where we didn't allow kids to deal with any sort of appropriate levels of adversity or have to figure certain things out. We emphasize so much on their self-esteem. This blows my mind. Self-esteem is earned, right? Self-esteem. Now, I'm not saying that they're, they're you, obviously, I believe that people have 
inherent worth by virtue of being made in the image of God. But self-esteem, which is to say I am, I am happy with the things that I'm capable of doing and the decisions that I make, is largely based on what can you do and what sort of decisions do you make, especially those decisions within adversity or challenging. And if you've been robbed of all that, you've had all that ripped away from you, or you've had any sense of responsibility that you do have a duty to be able to overcome things and figure it out and push through and accomplish, right? If you had that ripped away from you, you you grow up in this world where you're constantly being told, at least by the, the people in your immediate circle, that you're wonderful and beautiful and you are perfect just the way you are. Biggest frigging lie Disney ever told anybody. You are perfect just the way you are. No, you are not. No. And to tell someone that, is to not to do them a, a service. It's to do them a disservice. It does the exact opposite. Well, I mean, we are imperfect people and it's normal to be imperfect. That's what's interesting is this idea that it's like, oh, well, there's perfection. And um, and and that and like if I'm not perfect or if I can find flaw in myself, then, it's I'm, even worse then than I'm not normal. And it's like, but it is normal to have flaws. It, it is normal not to be perfect. And the way to to challenge yourself is not to like put a little like fake cover on it and go, oh, well, I am perfect. <laughs> Instead, it's no, just deal with the thing that's imperfect. Yeah. Deal with that thing. Well, uh, it, I wanted to mention one thing is um, I think it, there is this idea of, of letting your kids overcome challenges and how good that is for them. I have a friend whose, you know, daughter is, I mean, she just became an adult and just boom, 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 back to back. She had to replace her alternator. She had to replace her battery. She had to get new tires. And she's just feeling so overwhelmed by adulting already at 18 years old. And I think, you know, this is so good for her. Like she hates it while it's happening. Sure, we all do. But it's so good for her that her parents were like, okay, you've got this. You can make, you can fix this. She's yeah. got a full-time job. The girl's doing great. Yeah. It's just, she didn't like the the fact that she has to um, meet all of these challenges. It's hard while you're going through it. But when you meet the challenge, when you get past it, that's when you feel confident in your ability to get past future challenges. And uh, it reminds me of the story where like all of us, I think as, as little kids, we would get like the little butterfly kit, right? Mm. And the caterpillar would be, you know, inside the little chrysalis or the cocoon. And you would see when it would finally be time for it to like come out and it's like pushing and struggling and all of this. And, and there's that story that I think we've all heard where the little girl just wanted to help it. So she like carefully, you know, peeled back the little pieces of the cocoon in order to help the butterfly get out. And instead of the butterfly flying away and doing beautifully, it sat there with its wings crinkled and died. And the reason why is because as the, the butterfly is coming out, it needs the resistance in order to push the blood flow into the wings. And if it doesn't get that resistance, the blood won't flow into it and they won't, they won't fully um, push out so they could fly. And I feel like that is the best example to me, of letting your children endure healthy challenges, mm-hmm. not not unhealthy challenges, but um, don't don't create adversity for your kid and make you the adversary. That's yeah. not what I mean. I mean, have them face challenges and don't just take it off their plate and go, "Mommy's got this. I'll do the whole thing for you." No, 
make them figure out the way out, make them problem solve. Yeah. And I feel like that's what's missing now. And that's why we have this prolonged um, adolescence where people aren't like grownups until they're 28. Yeah. Coach, Coach, Coach Dalton. I feel personally attacked. I'm sorry, Chris. Coach, Coach, Coach Dalton, uh, thank you very much for the donation. You also said, parent the narcissism out of your children instead of affirming it. Oh, yeah. Amen. Yes. Absolutely. I remember one time when my, my son was playing peewee soccer, right? Which the only thing more frustrating sometimes than watching peewee soccer is peewee t-ball. T-ball is watching paint like curl. It's just horrible. But there's important lessons to be learned. Anyways, my son was playing peewee soccer and he, he's little and he's not all that into it. And, you know, he's kind of at the like dandelion picking stage of you know stuff. <laughs> and, and his, and his team, his team wins. And he comes to me, he goes, he goes, um, you know, Hey, Hey daddy did, did, did I do good? I was like, no son, you didn't. <laughs> and and it, I get, I think he was like four or five. He's like, but, but we won. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't do your job. And, um, you know, be, like other parents are like, oh my gosh. What was I'm his like, reaction? His, his, he, he was a little upset with it. But then I didn't just leave it there. And I'm like, you suck, right? I didn't say that. I was like, I said, I said, buddy, here's the deal. You, you had a job to do on the soccer field and you kind of wanted to play around and you wanted to come off and take a break and eat orange slices and do it. Your team needed you to get out there and, and play soccer, right? And, and you were just kind of hanging out. And now that your team won, you, you want, to be like, oh, did I? No, you didn't. They won in spite of you. Yeah, they, they won in spite of you, not because of you. I think I know where you're going. And then next game, we're out there, and he is just God, running yeah. around and doing the whole thing. The whole team loses. And he gets up, I'm like, you did a good job, buddy. He's like, we lost. I said, I know. There's certain things that you, you can't control, but you did your job. You were out there. You, were, you, were, you weren't coming back here and trying to eat orange slices. You were out there doing your best to try to win. That is absolutely like, you know, like the parenting advice that I feel like that the last 10 years or 20 years, parents have been told not to do that. What you just described right there. Yeah. So Vil Wilhelm asked a question. He goes, um, how do parents teach their kids about how dangerous the world is without sounding paranoid? That's a, that's a great question, especially now with social media and everything else. I, I think one of the things is, um, and again, I, I'm not trying to say I'm an expert. I think all Tina and I are trying to say is we have a 20 year old, we have a 17 year old, we have a 15 year old. We have great relationships with our kids and they all seem to be pretty well adjusted and know what they want to do with their lives. Yeah. And we definitely right? have had the people be like, oh, well, just wait till they hit their teen years. They're going to, it's yeah. going to be like this. And it never was. <laughs> never our was. kids are really, really good kids. But I'll tell you what, we also used to get flack from people for getting on to our kids when yeah. they misbehaved, even when it was small. And they'd be like, that wasn't that big of a deal. Why'd you, why'd you get onto them? It's like, there's a reason why our kids are well behaved yeah. and it's cause we don't let the little things fly. We don't, yeah. we don't let that just go. And again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean we're constantly like, but especially when they would do stuff, no, behavior is, is especially important. when they did something that was disrespectful. If yeah. they did something that was disrespectful, they did something that was rude, especially towards somebody else. Like we were, we were adamant about that. But to answer your question, Wilhelm, I think there's a couple of ways that you do that. One, we need to be a lot more careful about what, what access we give our kids to the broader world, because that is more, that is one thing to Christian's point about growing up as a kid now versus growing up with a kid. Then back then you, you could, a little kid going out and playing in the neighborhood could still be exposed to some pretty horrible things. Right. But now you can be exposed to horrible things by just putting on your phone and going to the internet. 
And, and that is something where I, I, I'm a big believer that, you know, we did not give a couple of things. One, we did not give our kids access to the internet, um, or access to a phone when they were, when they were very little, pretty much when they got to an age where they were going to start to spend, they were going to find themselves in more things, more activities away from us where we knew we needed to communicate with them. That's when they started to get access to phones. Uh, and even then we, we limited what sort of access they could have. Like, you know, not all phones are created equal. Your kid doesn't need the, the fanciest phone out there that can access the internet whenever they feel like it. And it doesn't matter if other kids give them crap about it. Your job is to take care of them, not everybody else's kid. But I will say this, our kids got to an age where they, they finally got smartphones. This was one thing that we did that I highly encourage. We did not say, here you go. Here's your smartphone. We made it very, very clear. We did this with their rooms. We did this with their phones. We did this with a lot of things. It was, this is not your room. This is not your smartphone. This is our room. This is our smartphone. You get to use them. You, you get a certain degree of exclusivity, ex exclusive use over this. Like it's your room. It's not like anybody else that's going to use the room. Uh, this is your phone to use. But the moment I say, let me see your phone, your response will be, here you go. And I'm not going to hear any crap about, this is a violation of my privacy. No, it isn't because it's not yours. It's mine. I let you use it. It's my phone. The moment I want to see it, your response, the moment it is anything other than, here you go, I'm taking it because it was never yours in the first place. I was giving you a tool to be able to utilize in order to contact, so we can contact you when you go places. A side benefit of that is I'm allowing you to use other services and other things on that phone, but you will live understanding, knowing that at any point I can check it. And I will tell you this, there's a lot of parents like, oh my gosh, that my kid would lose their mind if I did that. Yeah, because you set the expectation early on that they have some sort of like overarching rights to do whatever they want in private on their phone. And if you check it, you're violating some sort of private. No, you're not. You're being a parent. So set the right expectations when they do start to get those things. That's the first, that's the first thing nowadays that you do in order to prevent your kids from being exposed to things that are harmful. The other thing too is, is I think that at age appropriate levels, you also make sure that they're aware of dangers out there. And I think part of what you do is you don't create this environment where they think that there's a, a bad guy behind every single corner, but really what you're doing is you're empowering them to look for things and be smart about how they interact with the world. So the reason why they're doing that is not because if they don't, they're going to get kidnapped and they're going to be, the reason why you do this is because it's important to know what's going on. You should understand the environment that you're in. You should be aware of certain things. You should be careful about certain things because this is a smart thing to do. This is an empowering thing to do. So you're, you're not doing it. You're, you're doing it to be cautious. You're doing it to be aware, but you're not doing it out of this constant drumbeat of, of fear and paranoia. And, and I, I think it changes the way that they, they think about things. Like for instance, my kids know when we go in and we sit down in a restaurant, I sit viewing the door. You can say that's a little thing. You can say whatever. I want to know who's coming into that door. All right. My kids pick up on this. Um, there, there's a certain way when we, when we walk down the street, they all know I walk on the street side. So what we're doing on this is that we're, we're reinforcing two things. One, you have to be aware of your surroundings and what's going on because there's certain degrees. It may not be a high degree of probability that you're going to hit by a car. It may not be a high degree of probability that someone dangerous is going to come through the door of the restaurant, but you're still aware. And what, they, what ends up happening is they're not paranoid. They don't think daddy's paranoid. They just think that what I'm doing is I'm protecting them because I love them and I care about them. And then they're also recognizing, oh, that's a way to have a better understanding of what's going on around my surroundings.
The other biggest thing that I, I can't emphasize enough, and then um, Tina, I don't know if you want to add anything, their friend group. Um, their, their friend group is really, really important because, man, who you hang out with has a huge degree of influence on the way that you think about the world. But I will say it, this. It influences everything, not yeah. just not just their ideas and their responses to things. But, like, have you ever noticed that your kids will pick up little weird, like, sayings or little yeah. isms from their friends? Like, there there was a while there where, like, all the kids were doing TikTok or whatever. And, they're like, no matter what they were doing, they were always doing some kind of weird thing, like, dancing with their hands. Yeah. And, I, <laughs> and I, I'm just going, you look like such a... <laughs> but, okay. um, but that that's was a, a great finally somebody Tina. said it. <laughs> but, oh man! But the thing totally is, is um, and then they grew out of it, you know. But it's it's kind of funny. Um, you start noticing your kid, you know, use little catchphrases that their friends are using yeah. and things like that. So since you know for sure they do that. They yeah. catch on to that. What would make you think they wouldn't also catch on to the ideas? Yeah. Well, there was another thing that we did early on with our kids that I will swear by this until the day I die. So we didn't have, when, when our kids, uh, I think our oldest started was seven at the time. We moved to our new house. We didn't have cable. Now, that didn't mean we didn't have like some streaming services. We watched the movies together and the whole deal. Um, we mostly went and like bought DVD box sets yeah. of things that we felt comfortable. And I remember when we introduced our kids to I Love Lucy <laughs> and they didn't realize this was like old. They did. Really old. They no idea. <laughs> and they were laughing their tails off down in the basement watching yeah. it. And they just... It was on repeat all the time watching. Our kids loved Lucy. I Love Lucy. They loved Little House on the Prairie. They loved um, they loved uh, Gilligan's Island. Um, now this did, they also watched like Barbie and stuff like that. But I, I got to relay a funny story here. I would be watching Barbie with my kid. My my little girls loved Barbie, and like Daddy, watch Barbie with us. Like oh, all right, <laughs> you want to talk about a truly sacrificial father moment? It was watching Barbie. They got to where they didn't want Daddy to watch Barbie That's with not them anymore, totally and true. here's why. So we're watching. One of the things I think is so important about your kids, not just from a, a safety and an awareness perspective, but also from like an intellectual development perspective, is to understand that when they're watching movies, messages are being conveyed. That movie is not just neutral entertainment, right? That movie is almost always trying to teach some sort of lesson, and you want to make sure that it's teaching the right lesson. So I'm sitting there watching Barbie. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was Princess and the Popper. Princess and the Popper. Was it that one? I think yes. it was a different one. There was no, one it's where Princess and the Popper. That's the one where uh, the mine runs out okay. of everything. So, the, so Princess and the Popper. Here's the backstory real quick, just in case you don't know. Barbie is the princess, right? And then there's this, there's the Popper, right? That's the poor girl that looks a lot like Barbie, except that one has like brown hair and one has blonde hair. So Barbie lives in the castle and feels constricted by the rules of the castle, whereas the popper feels like, wouldn't it be so good to live in the castle? Like classic story. Well, we have this problem now where, okay, she wants to experience being a princess. The other person wants to experience what she perceives as being more freedom by just being a regular person. But, oh my gosh, the mine, the mine runs out of gold and the mine is responsible. It, it's the, it's the primary source. It's the economic engine of this, of this small village. So this movie was written by MMT enthusiasts. That's right. So, so the, <laughs> the mother is like, oh my gosh, Barbie's going to have to marry this really, really bad Duke from this other land because otherwise they're not going to be able to take care of their people. And I'm sitting here and I'm looking at, I'm like, this is what? What? And, and keep in mind, Lily, I think at this point was like maybe 12 when we were watching this. She's like, what's wrong? I'm like, 
What do you mean the mine is the sole source of economic activity within your area? And if it is the sole source of economic activity, can someone please explain to me why? Why, in a village containing maybe 450 people, you've spent what has to be the equivalent of three years of your GDP building one government building, i.e. your castle, <laughs> right? And now and now the lesson we're being taught is you got to marry her off to some other dude that has more. This is garbage. Daddy, it's just a story. I'm like, I want you guys to understand. <laughs> this, is, this is crap. First of all, what they should have been doing is First of all, privatize the mine. The government should not be running this. Second of all, right, diversify your income. I guarantee you, if people were spending that money, they would have built other industries and businesses and the whole deal, and you wouldn't have your entire economy exclusively dependent on but one you don't understand. government source of revenue. Uh, you don't understand. The Queen's advisor, Preminger, had been stealing it. See, it was <laughs> so, embezzlement. Right, because a government official had exclusive <laughs> access to the one source of economy because it had been national. Anyway. But hold on, though, because <laughs> the way everything got saved is that they realized that the mine had another precious uh, precious <sighs> stones, and so they were all saved. So anyways, <laughs> and it, like, okay, that's an extreme example. We had another one where it's like every Barbie movie, there was, there was this little ration there for a while where it was like, oh, this evil mean business owner wants to you know destroy this beautiful forest to build a bit and here's what i did like again i gave you guys the extreme version of this i was not this animated or whatnot i'm i'm joking but i would sit with the girls and i would sit with my son when we'd be watching something I'd be like i'd pause every once like what do you think they're trying to do what do you think they're trying to get you to think about this right now well i think they're trying to get this okay well what do you think about this and, and we'd have conversations and sometimes it would be during the movie. A lot of times it would be afterwards. Maybe we're having dinner or whatnot. Like, what did you guys think about that? And I, and what it did is that it, even though sometimes it drove him nuts, like daddy, I just want to watch Barbie. I'm like, fine, we'll just watch Barbie. But what it taught them to anticipate is that when they watch something, they're being delivered a message, a worldview and a sense of ideas, not just entertainment. Yeah. It is not just entertainment. That was lesson one. The second lesson I would say, and dads, if you are listening, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swear by this. Jane Austen adaptations. What do I mean by that? When our kids were little, sometimes we would all sit down and we would watch like Pride and Prejudice. Not the, not the new version. I'm talking about the, old, the older version with Jennifer Eel, which was, which was awesome. Colin Firth and all that. We, we'd watch some of these. And, and again, for all of you that I'm losing man points with right now, just bear with me. All right, Sense and Sensibility, um, you know, Pride and Prejudice. Those were two of, they were my, two of my favorites to watch with my girls because I remember I remember Lily one, one day when she was like 12 or 13 and we're watching one of these and you got to understand the heroines in Jane Austen novels are always the women who are, they're strong, they're composed, they're intelligent, right? They're beautiful, but they're always the ones that they don't get they, they don't get wrapped around the axle. There's always like one sister that's kind of like the boy crazy sister. And then there's the other sister that's calm, cool, collected, can see through stuff, but can also admit when they got it wrong and then adapt and change based off of new evidence. It's wonderful. It's like a, it is a genuinely strong, empowered, you know, woman in so many cases, intellectually and, and whatnot. But I'll never forget my daughter watching this. And we're watching some other movie. And again, Healthy Diet of Sense and Sensibility, Northanger Abbey, Emma, Mansfield Park, Pride and Prejudice. And then one day we're watching this movie and these two people kiss. And Lily looks over like aghast. Like she goes, they're not engaged. I said, yeah, I know. She goes, well, she's going to lose her character. And I'm like, thank you, Jane Austen. <laughs> 
we have a question from Lego Spartan. Yeah. Um, question. How would you encourage your child to pursue something they're passionate about as a hobby without being overbearing and taking something they enjoy doing and turning it into a job? Uh, that's that's a great question. Um, I you want to should we use the uh, the blacksmithing? Go ahead. That would you, be a great. Example. You want to talk about kind of a crazy example? Um, w- one of the things that I found so interesting about the homeschooling world in general was not just that we we liked the curriculum or we liked the. Um, the environment or having more time with our kids. One of the things we loved about it was the diversity of subject matter, right? There's this idea that, well, if you really want, you know, the, the career technical education, all this other stuff, you have to go to the public school because they have the facilities. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I, I was sitting there and we went to a homeschool fair and there was somebody there that was talking about blacksmithing. And Luke was really interested in this, right? Um, so him and I went to uh, 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 the, the guy's class, and it's called Platinum Star Forge. It, it's here in kind of the central Virginia area. Great, great dude, great guy. And we went through, and I'm going to tell you right now, like I was halfway expecting like half the day to be PowerPoint presentations on like, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was all safe. Like you got to wear your gloves, got to wear your um, glasses. You know, you know where to stand, know where to do. But it, it hands-on, hands-on, hands-on. And Luke loved it, absolutely loved it. And, um, so we bought a forge, like not an expensive one. You can get a, you can get a decent forge for a hundred bucks. Right. And then our, our good friends and Nate found an anvil because an, like good anvils, anvils are kind of hard to find. That's where the expense kind of, kind of hard to find, right? It's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks, but, um, this was one of those things where Luke could go out there. Now we're not in a position. I've given him assignments before. Like, okay, Hey, your job is to make this. You need to research it. And I didn't hover over him. Like your job is to research it, go on YouTube, find it out. Um, you know, research it, make it, this is your deadline. This is, this is the expectations. And it, it was funny because this was a school assignment and Tina's like texting me. Cause I was in Richmond at the time for, for the general assembly <laughs> session. She goes, Hey, I want to thank you so much for that assignment. You gave our son. It's 10 o'clock at night and he's been hammering away on metal for the last seven hours. It was, but he loved it. I had such a headache. And he did, and he he did a, he did a great for having not gone through a knife making class. Like he did a great job of like figuring this out and, um, he did, so, it looks great. So I would say that on, on certain things, our, our kind of rule was when our kids were little, like we made them play a sport, uh, but we didn't make them stick with the sport if they absolutely hated it. We just wanted to expose them to different, uh, different like athletics, different things that they could potentially do. And some of them took, and some of them didn't, um, as they got older, what we started to reinforce with their homeschool curriculum and things like that is like, okay, you, you now have a, a good baseline of things that you like to do and things that you don't like to do. What you should probably start to look at are what are the things that you can do that can turn into potential careers that you would enjoy? And once they, and now we, we always looked at it as like, look, there's this whole follow your heart, right? Follow your dreams. No, follow your talents, Right. Follow your talents, follow the things that you're good at doing, because chances are you're going to find out that that's what you actually really enjoy. And that's what you're good enough at doing to actually get paid for. Right. If you're in now, my, my, uh, oldest daughter loves the theater. Uh, I'll never forget. She was, a, she was a Senate page and, and all the universities came and they asked her, what do you like to do? And she goes, well, I, I love theater. She goes, oh, we have a great theater program. She goes, no, no, I don't want to study theater. She goes, I, I want to be, you know, I want to be, you know, at best, she goes, I want to be an actress with a business degree, not a waitress with a theater degree. <laughs> 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 All right, but not, not, not trashing anyone out there with theater degrees. Did she uh, actually say yes, that? Yes, she did. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. It's Lily <laughs> Christian. But here's a, like, yeah. yeah, that's actually that's actually a totally classic yeah. Lily. But here's, here's so, what somebody it, actually said we should have our kids on here and yeah. do an interview, you guys, I'm telling you. Oh my gosh. You but the thing is is that she still loves, she does plays all the time. She loves it, but she she also realized that it, it will be hard for me to be able to make an income doing this at least initially. So what's a skill set that I can develop that will actually put me in proximity to that but also gives me a lot of freedom whether it's to continue my education. So she chose cosmetology. Now, we had told our kids from a fairly young age, it's not our responsibility to pay for your college. That doesn't mean we're not willing to assist, but you're never going to look at it like it's our job to pay for you to go to college. That is not our responsibility. That's yours. And we will be happy to assist you as long as it makes sense, right? And she worked the late shift. She got a job working at McDonald's. She worked at some other places. She worked late shift. She worked at a coffee shop. And she saved up and she she paid the $22,000 it was to go through a nine-month cosmetology school with Paul Mitchell. And I'll tell you what, she's, she's never really like loved school. She loved going through that. She loved what she was learning. She signed up for all of the additional classes that she could, all the different little master's classes she could. And, and she... I mean, she just rocked it. She did a great job. And the funny part was, is that I actually had, I actually had someone in higher education that didn't know my daughter went in, went through cosmetology that said, well, you know, Nick, we, we don't want all our kids to become cosmetologists. I was like, I'll just store that away and I'll remember that the next time you want to talk to me. I do think it's weird when people will denigrate the honest work of other people. Well, here's what I don't get is that within a relatively short period of time, she will have paid off all the money that she, like, like first of all, she didn't have any debt in the first place because she worked to put she herself through it. She never even took out a loan. She just paid it in installments. And when she marched her little self in there to pay her last installment, she wasn't even done with school yet. Yeah. So, yeah. And when and with within, within like a year of her being out of the school, she had made more money than she had made actually going to the school, right? Like significantly more money than she made going to the school. And she had been saving money. By the way, she pays for her own, she paid for her own car, paid for her own insurance, and has saved up money to buy a house because she's engaged now, right? To, for a down payment for, toward a house. And I'm looking at this going, yeah, you're right. You're right. My, my daughter, who did all of this, who fought for this, she should feel like, gosh, she's just not quite as accomplished as the person with the gender studies degree and $50,000 in college debt. That's exactly why we didn't raise her to believe that she has to have a college degree no matter what. No, get a college degree if it makes sense. Get a college degree if it makes sense five years from now. I didn't get my college degree until I was 32. And even then I question whether or not I should have. I'm, I'm working on a master's right now. And, and it's so funny because I joke with people that like don't go to school. And then they're like, but aren't you trying to get a master's right now? And it, part of it is because my dad really wants me to, to do this. And so he's been been pushing and supporting me to, to do it. But the other side is that like I just want it for myself. I don't necessarily yeah. want it to fulfill my career. But it does um, like the... Get it, getting back to what what Lily said, like I, I, that. Not only is it funny, there's so much truth to that in the yeah. sense that, like, I'm reminded of um, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot when when he he criticizes this notion. And we did bring this up early in this podcast. This whole you know you're you're just as good as you are, and he's like, no, I think that you can always be a better version of yourself. Yeah, and and what he tries to do in his clinical work is try to to you know 
push people to become better, not just say, oh, you're just fine the way you are and we just need to fix these you know, problems that you have with yourself and you don't yet realize how great you are. No, instead he says, you can be better, you can do better. And I think the job of every parent is to, is to really push that. Like my dad is the reason that I love history so much. And he, he really molded and, and pushed that interest, but, but not in an overbearing way, but, but more in a, Hey, you can learn more stuff about this. Yeah. And likewise, maybe this gets into some, some other things that you want to talk about later in this episode. There's, there, there's something that my, my, my mother and my stepfather did a lot when I was growing up, which was questioning authority, mm-hmm. not just taking things you know, at face value, but questioning them and investigating them, not necessarily in a conspiratorial sense, but I remember I once, um, went up to my parents. There was something that I read in some book. I was in, in elementary school. I was in fourth grade, I believe fourth or fifth grade. And I was reading about something about astronomy. And I remember telling my parents, like, did you know that there's blue stars and you know, our, our stars like orange, yellow, but you know, there's blue stars out there. And they're like, well, how do you know that? And I was like, well, it says so in this book right there. And they're like, and that's enough evidence for you. (laughs) <laughs> and and they i remember all the time i would get upset actually i'd be yeah. like but but it says it right here and, and 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 they'd be like yeah and how do you know that that's true and i'd be like because it says so right here and yeah. like, like we would just get into this argument and and what they were trying to do is is to get me to question what what other people were publishing and saying now there's a you could say, oh, that's going to lead you into being a conspiracy theorist. But I'm sorry if you're listening to this podcast, there's probably <laughs> the last three years, I feel like, has been more than enough evidence and proof that yeah. that that approach that my, my my parents took with, you know, instructing me, teaching, pushing the boundaries and, and, and pushing me to to question things. Because what it did was is that it opened up an, an interest in the sciences because suddenly I wanted to. I, I was always into history because my dad made me into it, but I, I was suddenly interested in in physics and in astronomy because I wanted to be able to prove to my parents that like, yeah, there actually are like blue stars out there. And it made me do more than just read what some somebody had published in a book and just take that at face value. And I feel like that a lot of kids now, they're just waiting or a lot of young adults, they're just waiting for the official narrative to drop. It's yeah, the yeah. NPC meme, right? Well, I don't know what to believe yet because I haven't been told what to believe yeah, yet. Yeah. It's we, true. We, we like get, after COVID and, and after all the follow the science and follow the experts, it's like none of us should be just taking things at face value anymore because we, you know, it's like I'm not going to be duped again. Yeah, we got a couple of good questions here. One from Daffy. Question, how do I protect my daughter at college from indoctrination? Daffy, that's a little bit longer explanation. We're, I'm, I'm, we're going to do that. It's actually kind of in our script right now. And specifically, how do you address the sort of things with, with college indoctrination? So I, I wanted you to know that we saw the question. We are going to answer it. Uh, but it's, it's going to be a little bit, we got to build some more you know, groundwork. Uh, Caitlin asked a great question. How do you get grandparents to support you on what movies, activities, environments you want your children to be exposed to when they think there is no harm in things targeted to kids? Excellent, excellent question. And I think some of this, depart- like I, I had a great, um, I love the fact that I grew up close to my grandparents and one of the biggest, I think <laughs> the only the only regrets that we kind of have um, with where we live is the fact that it is so far away from um our, our children's grandparents. We, we wish they could have more time and whatnot. But one of the things that I, I think Tina and I tried to establish early on, and this actually started first in our marriage. And, and that was um, when we were going to set up traditions or, or whatever it was. Um, we, we didn't play the whole game where it's like, if I got a problem with Tina, I go and I complain to my, my mom or my dad. And when Tina had a problem, she didn't go and complain to her parents. 
And and every once in a while there would be something where one of our parents and our parent like our like I love my in-laws. They're great. Um but every once in a while there would be times where like one of our parents might step over a line, right? And and not a not a big one, not a bad one, but just maybe a little bit more like, well, you know, I don't understand this or I don't understand that. And Tina would always deal with hers, I would deal with mine, but it was I, I can remember looking at it going okay, well, I'm sorry. That's the way we do it. And if that's the way Tina wants to do it, that's the way that we're going to do it. Like we always had each other's back on this. Um, if there was something that, you know, we might, um, think later, like, ah, what's, what's the big deal? Or if I had a question about it, it was never in front of parents. Parents always knew that if, if they intervened into something that we were doing with our kids or whatnot, I was going to back her play. She was going to back my play. And then if we thought that there's something that maybe, okay, maybe they had a good point. We would talk about that offline. But the support for here was always 100%. With our kids, every once in a while, we've dealt with that. Where it's like, oh, you know, what's, and, and, I, and I have. There's, it doesn't happen a lot, very rarely, right? Typical kind of grandpa, grandma stuff sometimes. But there's been times where I've looked at a, a parent and said, that's not how we do this. Um, you know, sometimes I, <laughs> my mom, my mom, whenever she comes over, she, she just loves to like clean and help out around the house and the whole deal. And we'll like emphasize to our kids that, you know, Hey, you, you know, you know, nanny is going to want to clean and help. And whether, so you need to take care of your own dishes. You need to take care of your own laundry and stuff like that. So every once in a while, <laughs> nanny would, you know, I'll be like, mom, mom, that's, that's the kid. Oh, it's okay. You know, I, I can get it. I'm just doing it anyways. And so I will call up like the kids. I'll be like, so nanny is doing your job right now. So you know what that means. It means I will come up with other stuff that you will do, which I guarantee you, you will not enjoy as much as doing the job you were supposed to do in the first. Nanny, we got oh. it. She's like, no, She's no, no. She's always like, it's I a- didn't mean to get them in trouble. And I'll be like, well, well, <laughs> Nanny, you are. You're getting them in trouble. In fact, you're getting them more trouble. I'm doubling the responsibilities right now. So, you know, we do that as kind of like a fun thing. But part of it, too, is also demonstrating to our parents that, look, there's a particular way we parent and there's a reason why we do it. And it needs to be respected. Yeah. It's, it's, this is why the kids are such good kids. And that's the thing is it's like, we can't like, we can't just throw the rules out the window. Um, just cause the grandparents are in town or what it's like, no, yeah. there's a reason they're good. And if we want them to be good when you're here, we need to keep the rules when you're here, because if not, it'll be fun time and that's when they do all the things they shouldn't do is when you're here and you don't want that. Now there, there is something that there is something in the old adage that, you know, if you, if you raise your kids, you can spoil your grandkids. If you spoil your kids, you'll raise your grandkids. I think that's, I think there is actually, I think there's actually, how do I, how do I put this? There is something to grandparents getting to have that space to be able to spoil the grandkids. A yeah, little bit. they should get to spoil the kids. All right, just just yeah. a little. Now again, not not extreme, not bad, not to where it's violating your rules, but there is a special bond that I think takes place between grandkids and their grandparents when they're able to do fun things. And and you know what? Now that I'm now that Tina and I are probably just a few years away from being grandparents, I am definitely going to like you know. I spoil my grandkids a but, little bit, but, but, it's but it not, will you're always not just spoiling them in every sense because no. there are some things where it's like, I don't want my kids watching scary movies at no. your house, or no. I don't want them seeing sexual content on the TV. Now here's the thing is Nick and I, our families don't watch weird things on the television. Um, mm. and, and our kids aren't at their house to see weird things on the television. But I do know 
you know, like everybody has a different sensitivity level on yeah. some of these things. And we have seen situations where like, oh my gosh, we, we didn't want the kids to, you know, watch the exorcist. Why, why do you have this on? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and so there's some things like that, or there's some crazy love scene and you're like, do you realize the kids are in the room and you're watching this love scene? Yeah. And, um, so that hasn't happened to us specifically. So we haven't actually had to address that, but, um, cause my parents and Nick's parents, none of them are the type to watch that kind of stuff. And so they, it just wouldn't even be a line we need to talk about. Well, I, yeah, I, I, but I will say this the, to, so to kind of sum up the whole answer to your question, first of all, first and foremost, you and your husband need to establish that when there is, uh, when, when parents are kind of going into a particular situation or saying something, when I, you have your spouse's back, you always have your spouse's back, your united front. If you think that there's some, you know, maybe some wiggle room and, and maybe one of your parents suggested or whatnot, that's great. That's a, that's a conversation for you and your spouse to have apart from your parents. Um, by the same token, I would say like our, our goal is, is to set up certain disciplinary boundaries. We do not brook disrespect. Um, we just, we do not tolerate it. Disrespect is a, is a bad thing. Once your kids start becoming disrespectful. Now that doesn't mean that they can't challenge us sometimes. And I'm going to get to that next, but we don't brook disrespect. Um, that will not serve them well, uh, in, in their life. So we won't let their grandparents like let them off the hook. If our kids do something that we, we perceive as disrespectful or a complete, you know, something lacking responsibility, um, we, we do not, and, and a grandparent, Oh, it's not a big, no, it is a big deal. And they will not do it. And our kids know that. And, and to the point where now, like sometimes the grandparents, they know just not to say anything because if they, if they try to reinforce this idea that, oh, it's not a big deal. It's like, oh, okay, now I will make sure it is a big deal. I will make sure that my kids know it's a big deal because you just said that. So now it's like, okay. Oh, and the other thing too, <laughs> is after years and years of this being the way it is, there are times when we will hear other kids talk to their parents and I'll, and my kids will look at me and go, can you believe they're talking to their parents like that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. what, what would happen if you talk to us that way? And he's, they're like, no, I, we would never, Yeah, we would never, but it's, it's like, they will recognize it in other kids. Like I, I, one of our daughters actually came to me a while back and was like, I don't really like how this friend of mine talks to her mom. It's, it's, it's really disrespectful. And, um, it ended up being something where she just didn't really want to be around that person anymore because she felt like she was so mean to her mom. And I thought that was really like, that's a nice, that's a good thing that my kids can recognize now mm -hmm. good and bad behavior in their peers and be turned off by it. Yeah. No, I, I so I think setting those boundaries is really important. And that, and that leads to my next point. Does that mean your kids can never challenge you? And this, this also Daffy, this goes into your question too about, um, college. Cause I think this is one of the most important lessons that I, I kind of learned. I learned in a very difficult way. Um, but is, it is just reinforced and convinced me that this is one of the best ways that you can, um, teach your kids to be able to respectfully challenge authority and not just automatically assume that whatever the authority figure says is, is correct. And that is when you have taught your kids a standard for conduct or behavior or, uh, for critical thinking, uh, or for, for morality, right? And then you violate it. If your child brings that up to you in a respectful way, I'm not talking about like out in public going like, oh, so I guess you, no, 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 no. You don't get to, you don't get to engage in disrespect toward me. But I had a situation. I've talked about it before on the podcast. I'll talk about it here right now. And that is I came home from work. It had been a tough day. I was already frustrated. 
kitchen was dirty. My two youngest kids are in there, right? And I'm like, what are you doing? Clean all of this up and go to your room. Yeah, they were making currently like in the process of in the process the of, of making the mess. And I was like, clean this up, go to your room. Well, we no no no, just clean it up, go to your. Um, again, I was frustrated, long day. I was upset about a lot of things, and then I come home to this, right? So I'm 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 mad. So my oldest daughter comes, knocks on the door. Daddy, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, what is it, sweetheart? She goes, I don't think you handled that very well. Again, I'm upset. I'm frustrated. Now my 14-year-old is telling me, I don't think you handled that very well. And, and every ounce of me wants to be like, oh, do tell, please, from your vast experience, from the 14 years you've lived on this earth, raising no children, please tell me what you think I... And, and there is a very real possibility that I could have said something like that. But in this moment, by the grace of God, I said, okay. Because one of the things I recognize is that she was trying to be very respectful. Is this a good time to talk, Daddy? Yeah, go ahead. What is it? I don't think you did. Okay, so again, she's been respectful. She's brought up something. And then I, I sat there and I paused for a second. I said, okay, explain to me why. And she goes, the reason why Allie and Luke were down there cooking something is they wanted to make something for you. And Mommy had told them that they could. And they were trying to explain that to you. And you got upset. And now they're, they, they don't want to try to explain it to you because they're worried about getting in trouble. And I remember looking at her going, because oh, you feel horrible at that point. One, you feel, you, you feel kind of frustrated because you're being corrected by your child. And two, and, and, and by the way, I've had people go like, oh, well, why did you feel upset about being corrected by your child? Shut up. Shut up. Nobody likes being corrected by their 14-year-old. No Be one quiet. likes being corrected. No one likes period. being corrected, period. All right, but she was right. She was right. We gave them a standard for conduct. Right, And now my children were trying to do something nice for me. And instead of trying to understand the situation, I flew off the handle. I got upset. And, and you may be able to say, well, it, was a long, it doesn't matter that it was a long day. I still reacted. I still reacted poorly in that situation. How do I know? Because I had taught my daughter that was the wrong way to act in that situation. And now she was asking me to live up to the standard that I had taught her. So in that moment, I got one of two options. I can either say, well, this is different and I, I'm in charge and I'm your father and you know, there's other things going on and you know, just go to your room. I could do that. Or I can say, and thank God I, this time I did it the right way. There's other times where I haven't. I said, sweetheart, you're, you're right. Um, I'll go apologize to Allie and Luke. And I want to thank you for... I want to thank you for being willing to, to bring this to my attention and to do it as respectfully and as well thought out as you did. The reason why I, I think that was important is because ultimately what, if you're just teaching your kids that you and mom are the standard and what you say goes, because it's our house, our rules, what you've taught them is an arbitrary respect, if not fear for authority. You haven't taught them right or wrong, just or unjust, truth or false. You haven't taught them that. You've taught them a blind obedience to authority because doing what the authority wants will get you benefits and doing what the authority doesn't want will get you punishment regardless of whether or not it's right or wrong. What happens when they now leave your dominion and it isn't your house, your rules anymore. It's the professor's rules. And the professor says, you repeat this, you get an A and you do this, you get a D. You do this and you'll be socially ostracized. You do this and you'll be socially accepted. If you want to teach your kids to be able to overcome adversity, to be able to overcome bad authority, 
you're going to have to provide an environment where they can properly and respectfully challenge it while bringing evidence, not just how they feel about a situation, bringing evidence. And then when that authority figure, you know, at, at, at a university, if that professor shuts them down or tries to make them feel small, they will recognize it exactly for what it is, arbitrary authority abusing its power to try to get them to do what they want, as opposed to someone that is dedicated to teaching them the truth. And the response will be, no, no, no. I know this isn't right. I know this is wrong and I'm not giving into it because it's wrong. I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. It is, it is so important to be able to raise children, to be able to respectfully challenge things, to be able to use evidence, to be able to use logic, to be able to use reason in order to do it. But it really starts in your home because inevitably you're going to teach them something that is good and true and right and you are going to fall short of it. And if they, if they have the capacity to come to you respectfully and bring it up to you, reward them for that. Reward them for that because there's been so many other times in my, my kid's life where they've been in peer groups or teachers or authority figures or whatever else, and they were able to stand strong. And, and a lot of times, those a lot of times, those authority figures actually respected them for the challenge if it was done respectfully, right? It, it wasn't that they crushed them for it. They actually liked that your children were willing to engage and had a different perspective and wanted to discuss it. But in those few cases where they have been ridiculed for it or someone's attempted to isolate them for it, here's what they found out. Almost inevitably, when they left the classroom or they left the area that they were in, somebody in that group, one of those friends, one of the people that was observing one went on would come up to them and be like, thank you for doing that. See, because their courage at that point gave courage to somebody else to realize they weren't alone. So that that's why it is so, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can teach your kids about argumentation, about debate, about everything else. But that, that I, I always go back to that one teachable moment that there by the grace of God, right? It, it happened the way it should have. Um, I, I think that is so impactful for, for your kids and they will take so much away from that. So I, I hope that helps. Answer there, the question. there are some parents I've um, witnessed where they don't want to admit they were wrong to their kids because they feel like their kids are going to throw it back in their face all the time. You know, and like, oh, remember this time you were wrong and just throw it back in their face and like hang it over their head. And my response to that is that is learned behavior. Mm -hmm. You need to figure out where they learned that from. And if it's a behavior that you do, then I would suggest trying to deal with that. Um, because, and, and sometimes it may not be what you've done. It might be their friends. It might be some other authority figure. Um, but figure out where that is and try to dig down to the bottom of that because we shouldn't be throwing things in each other's faces that have already been dealt with. Yeah. Um, the, the forgiveness aspect where it's like, the Bible says love keeps no record of, long, of wrongs. So if you've got a laundry list of infractions that they thought were already dealt with, that they thought you'd already forgiven them for or that, that you had already like come to an agreement on, and, and you throw that laundry list out every single time they have a new infraction of some sort, then I would say that that, that is the bad behavior, not going and showing your kid, showing your kids that you were wrong or that, that you're fallible and sometimes you make mistakes isn't the bad thing here. The bad thing here is the behavior of throwing it back in your face. Figure out where that's coming from. If you're the one it's coming from, I would suggest curbing it. Yeah. It, this um 
By the way, real quick, if you do have any questions or, or specific things, like maybe you had an issue where your, your college student said something, your kid something that you, you would kind of like our take on, um, by all means, please put it in there. Just if you could put questions, semicolon, and then put it out there, it helps us kind of identify it among all the chats. So I just want to say that out. Go ahead, Christian. Sorry. I, I feel like that everything that, that Tina and you just said is especially important for anybody that wants to raise their kid to be a conservative or, or at least just not a, a woke progressive idiot. <laughs> not a communist. Because <laughs> when you, we've talked about this in so many episodes virtually every institution in this country is is completely has gone through institutional capture by the left right the media academia um wall street even like you you go down the list and the left has has completely taken over the workforce in many of these places many of these places that your kids are going to have to interact with either at the very tail end of their childhood or beginning of adulthood if they're going to college or they're starting a job and so be prepared, prepare them to face adversity in, in, in terms of their worldview getting challenged. Yeah. And you have got to equip them with the ability to defend that worldview if you want them to, to retain it. Otherwise, that worldview is going to disintegrate the second that they go into school or they start a job. Mm -hmm. And everything's being pushed, all the DEI stuff at their workplace or yeah. critical race theory or, or, or any form of critical theory is being pushed in their university. If you don't want them to just join the NPC crowd. Yeah. You've got to equip them with the ability to to challenge authority if not verbally at least at least mentally when they're, you know, when a certain narrative is being pushed. And so if you simply teach them how how do I say this? I feel like that children are being taught speaking as somebody who went through this about 15 years ago. And then 10 years ago, when I went into the university system, I feel like that children are being taught to respect authority when it shouldn't be respected uh -huh. and to question authority when it should be respected, if that makes sense. No, I, th I think you're right. I think what we're starting to see more and more now, especially within our education system, is this idea that the education system is supposed to supplant the authority of the parent and replace it with itself. And what it uses as an excuse for that is, well, some parents are horrible. All right, well, some teachers are horrible. I had somebody once tell me, like, Nick, nobody gets into teaching unless they just really care about the kids because you're just not getting rich. I said, oh, okay. And and every doctor is great and every soldier is wonderful and every cop is, is you know, just totally. No, teaching is an honorable profession. That doesn't mean that everyone that teaches is honorable, right? People can have ulterior motives. People can, over time, develop ulterior motives. So no, you, you don't get to tell me because here's, this goes back to the whole Thomas Sowell concept of trade-offs within society. Just because you can point to a parent or a whole host of parents that are doing a bad job does not mean that the solution is then it gives superior authority over to the government. It's to tear down the family structure because Holy there's some bad parents. Crap. Yeah, I, I, whenever I hear this argument. Terrible argument. Yeah, whenever I hear this argument, it's like, oh, well, we need the government more involved because some parents are bad. Like, oh, good. Well, I'm glad no government politicians, teachers, or bureaucrats are ever bad. I'm glad there's no such thing as a bad school administrator. Thing is, is bad. Thank God. Pe bad people are everywhere. You know, predators target. They go to target-rich environments, and yeah. so like every time we talk about people, like oh, these people are grooming children, or or we talk about the trafficking situations and things like that. People will always inevitably come back and be like, oh, but what about those Catholic priests? And what about those, you know, different ones that have have sexually abused children and blah, blah, blah. They're in the church. Blah. Yeah. And 
I always want to look back at them and go, yeah, there's bad people everywhere. And bad people try to find where the most target rich environment is. So yeah, they're going to be in places of trust, unfortunately. And not only that, but like, let's look at the common denominator. The common denominator is the sexual deviancy. Uh, And a lot of times these are men sexually abusing boys. Yeah. So there's the common denominator for you. Yeah, they they don't like they don't like that being pointed out. Where it's like, oh yeah, that problem exists. In you know areas. why? Because in the left's view, there are no bad people. They're simply this person had a troubled childhood, or a, yeah. you know, unless it, you're religious or it, on the right. No, no, but even then, it's simply, oh, you're not a bad person. You just believe in these these things that are not true, and we need to again indoctrinate you into our philosophy, and you'll be the the left truly wants to perfect humanity. That, that's the problem with the left is that they want to perfect humanity, whereas anybody that's on the right, anybody that's on the right recognizes, even if you're an atheist on the right, yeah. you recognize that humanity is not perfectible. Mm-hmm. And, and when you recognize that humanity is not perfectible, you realize that, okay, so we need to establish social structures in order to, to mitigate bad people from doing bad things because you're never going to be able to eliminate that. This is why we support a limited constitutional government as conservatives or libertarians, because we recognize that you will never have perfect human nature. If you did, then government wouldn't even be necessary. Well, and, and Brian Betts, Brian Betts says, um, and, and again, I always appreciate Brian's here because Brian's more on, on the left and he challenges things. He goes, teachers don't get paid enough to attract quality. I would, I would tell Brian, I said, that's, that, that's kind of a veiled insult toward everyone currently teaching. Um, the, the other thing that I, w- I would say is, is that I, I think we also need to ask ourselves if we really believe that that is the case, that teachers don't get uh, paid enough in order to attract quality, then we need to ask ourselves, okay, well, the government's been running it for how long now? So, so maybe that isn't the, may, maybe the approach that we should look is to not just simply say, well, more money is required. Maybe we should ask ourselves if more money being required has been a problem for, for a long time now, even though the money has steadily gone up with respect to expenditures, why do we continue to believe that the government's going to improve the situation when they've clearly failed to do so? Um, this is, this is another part where I, I, I look at this all the time and I'm thinking, my gosh, like why, again, I, I, I'm willing to address, uh, I'm willing to consider a problem and I'm willing to consider approaches, but only if we're willing to actually look at objective criteria whereby we can determine whether or not a positive outcome was met. And if it's not, you don't get to continually tell me that the solution is, well, we just got to, we just got to double down on what we're currently doing. Um, all right. Question. My mother is a bit of a religious conspiracy nut and made a comment that she thinks the world is ending. My wife and I are concerned now with her around our toddler and bringing him food. Uh, how would you, how would you, handle, how would you handle this? I love my mother, but we are concerned about his safety now. I, well, I'll, I'll tell you this. Your, your primary concern as a parent is for your child, not for your parents. Um, so if, if you really are genuinely concerned about that, well then, you know, uh, again, you're, you're going to have to determine what the boundaries are because I can't look at the I, I don't know all the specifics of, of the... Well, it depends on the age of the child, too. Yeah. Like, if you can talk to the child, how old did they say how old the child was? Well, if you're, if you're honestly concerned about someone bringing your child food, that... that yeah, that's that's, that's a whole That's a whole new level of, of concern with respect to, you know, actual physical harm for, for your child. And so you need to ascertain... Um, you need to ascertain that, okay, if, if you believe that somebody, anybody to include a parent is, is a potential physical threat to your child, well then that, that relationship needs to either be severed until there's a correction 
Um, or there, there needs to be incredibly heavily controlled monitoring for how that interaction takes place. Yeah, it, it now, depends. Now, the food aspect is, is what made that weird. Because yeah. if there was something where it was like, oh, they've got some weird conspiracy theories. Well, the way we deal with stuff like that, because we do, we have family members that are on the left and who are like, to me, kind of a little nutty on the left, you know? Um, and we just mitigate it by talking to the kids and being like, Hey, they kind of don't believe, believe some of the same things we do. So just kind of take what they say with a grain of salt. And if they say anything that makes you curious, let's talk about it. I, I think the thing to always keep in mind is that whenever you're interacting with like parents, there, there is uh, and grandparents and things like that. The thing to keep in mind is you're usually dealing with trade-offs, not solutions. So uh, in, in many cases, many cases, not all, Interaction with grandparents can be incredibly helpful and beneficial to your, your children's development. It can be beneficial with respect to you and giving you a little bit of a break as a parent so you can focus on your marriage as well and having a date night and things like that. Um, but if it, if it ever transfers over, there, there's a difference between I'm tired of, of you know grandpa and grandma giving the kids too many sweets and I think grandpa and grandma are going to hurt my kids. If grandma and grandma are going to hurt my kids, no, that's, sorry, no. But understand that that's something that, that you know, you want to make sure is, is, a, is a very real and genuine concern. Um, so I, I think it's just, it's just kind of di yeah, distinguishing like, between. I'd like to know more on that question. Um, is the food aspect of it because the kids have um, food aversions or allergies or things like that? Or are you worried about her tampering or, or, or making yeah. the food dangerous for the kids? That's the question there. Um, and, and I think that like it ultimately, and, and a lot of grandparents don't like to hear this. And, um, you know, like Nick's mom and I were in this conversation one time and she was talking about one of uh, somebody she knew whose daughter-in-law wasn't letting her see the grandkids. And my question was more of the, of the side of, well, why? Like, yeah. what's the whole story? And, and since Nick's mom knows this lady, she's like, she's a wonderful lady. I don't know why she they would do this. And so, so I think that sometimes you've got unreasonable um, boundaries where it's it's like kid, parents are super possess so possessive of, of their kids or or maybe their worldview is so different from your own that they like fear what you might say to their kids. So like maybe you're a Christian and the grandma is a Wiccan or yeah. something like that. And you're like, no, the kids aren't coming to your house. And like, well, and, and it may be that they can still be interaction. It just needs to be supervised interaction, right? That, sure. That's, that's the part, and, that's and the part that you're going to have to determine. There can be like unhealthy grandparents who are yeah. actually abusive. Yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, I won't, I won't go further into that, but like, I, I know of family situations that are in the past that were not healthy and it wouldn't have been good for the kids to go to the grandparents. Yeah. Um, so it just depends on what kind of upbringing you had. Like if your parents abused you growing up, I wouldn't trust them with your, no. with the grandkids just cause they didn't abuse or just cause they abused you. And doesn't mean they won't also abuse your grandkids yeah. or, or the kids. And, um, and that's, that's, I think where, you, you just draw the line and go, no, no, yeah you're not spending uh, ben, time with them. Ben Crabtree asked, question, how did you go about curbing behaviors in your kids when they were under five that weren't acceptable? Uh, example, four-year-old boy constantly bugging his two-year-old sister. We've tried most things. So um, that's, a, that's a good question. A lot of times, you know, things like that can be difficult. I, I will say that when you're talking about kids under the age of five, they're generally not responding to a great deal of, you know, 
intellectual explanation for why they you're shouldn't do something. You're not going to have a, a yeah, the, you know, theolocution. On. Yeah, yeah, this is yeah. You're, you're not going to have an Oxford style debate on on why. So I, I that's where I think that there is more room for prescription as opposed to explanation. Um, so the prescription is is that the, the consequences the consequences have to be delivered in such a way to where the four year old understands that bugging his sister one will get an immediate response and will always be something that he doesn't like. Um, so you understanding your children and, and what they might like or prefer or how to go about doing that is good. And now again, we always, we always clarify, we're obviously not talking about doing anything that would fall into the category of like abuse or anything like that. But, um, that's the thing is that a lot of times what ends up happening, um, is that as parents were tired or we're busy or we miss it sometimes. And when a child, uh, when a young child engages in a, in a, a behavior, uh, that we don't like, we're inconsistent with respect to how we deliver the consequence for that. And I would say that the more immediate the response and the more consistent the consequence, the closer they are to making a, a mental map, right, in their mind of, if I do this, this is the consequence. I don't like this consequence, therefore I won't do that, right? So I, I think there's a lot to be said for immediately intervening when something starts and having a very, very consistent consequence that they, that they can't get away from. Um, you know, again, that, that doesn't mean it won't take longer sometimes for it to, like, click in and there may be different ways that you can adjust the consequence. But I do think um, the consistency of the response is absolutely required. Otherwise they're just challenging the boundary. Like, Oh, well I got in trouble this time. I didn't get in trouble this time. And now what they're doing is they're modifying how they do it or when they do it as opposed to doing it. And that, so and yeah. kids want attention. They yeah. want attention. It can be good attention or it could be bad attention, but they will do whatever will bring the attention. And so you know, maybe they're having a little bit of fun while they're trying to like pester. I mean, little kids pester their siblings. They just do. But, um, but possibly there was something we kind of talked about when, when our kids were younger along these lines where it was like, okay, I can't give them so all the attention can't be negative attention. Yeah. And so I have to catch them doing good things or I have to pull them out of this environment and do good things completely separate from that bad behavior and then then come down on the bad behavior because it's like if if they're trying to get attention and like they're really lacking in an area of getting positive attention they're going to ramp up the negative yeah. in order to get the negative attention so i think it's like a two pronged approach where it's like yeah come down on the negative stuff but then also find other ways to bring positive attention um in other areas to kind of mitigate that feeling of not getting enough attention. I, th I think that's a really good point. We, we talk about this all the time that it's really easy to, um, you can always point out a lie to somebody, but if you don't point out an alternative, then sometimes it's hard to get them to, to leave the lie. Well, the same thing can happen with behavior. Um, if attention is what they're seeking and the only time they get attention is when they're being disciplined or when they're doing something like that, well, then that's the way that they get it. And so, yeah, if, if you're adding the positive, then you're, you're, you're not just providing, you're not just telling them where not to go. You're telling them where they can go. Um, and that, that's important. A uh, question from Lego Spartan. When it comes to preparing your kids for independence and letting them be their own person, how would you let your children know mom and dad are still there for them, but no longer over them? Um, this is a great question. I, I think it really comes into the idea of rewarding maturity. Um, so some people have this idea. We, we run into this with parents sometimes where they will look at something and they'll be like, you don't let your kids do that? No. Or those, oh, you do let your kids do that? Yes. Well, aren't they too young or aren't they too this or aren't they old enough to do we reward maturity. 
All right. So nothing special happens when you become 13 or 15 or seven. Nothing, nothing special happens. Nothing special happens. Still you. Good habits, bad habits, still you. So I believe that if you're rewarding maturity, well, then once again, what are you reinforcing? You're not telling them that there's some arbitrary age that once they meet it, they can do what they want. You're saying that when when they reach a certain level of maturity, maturity comes with benefits. Maturity comes with trust. Uh, two things that we really reinforced to our kids was lying would not be tolerated. Uh, lying was was punished significantly within our house. And the reason why is because the moment you lie to me, one, I would argue it shows a lack of maturity, but two, it also shows I can't trust you. And if I can't trust you, how can I let you do things that you want to do that might be outside of my protection or supervision? And so we started this off very, very young with the kids. And we, we haven't really had a, a major problem with lying. That's not to say that it doesn't happen at times. And a lot of times it's kind of those typical, like, you know, lies by omission, um, where you didn't ask the question specifically enough to get the real answer that you wanted. So I, I would say that, you know, the, um, the most important thing there is established very, very early on that lying will never be tolerated. And it's probably one of the things that gets most significantly punished. And then also explain that if you lie, I can't trust what you tell me. You want me to be able to trust what you can tell me. Um, the other thing is, is this, when your kids know they can't lie to you, they will actually self-regulate on some of the things that they do. It's the same thing with if I give you access to a phone, but you know I can take the phone back at any time. And, and in my case, oh, and daddy also has to have, happens to have a little bit of cybersecurity expertise, right? Um, it, they will self-regulate because they don't want to have to come back and admit to doing something. I remember this very clearly with, with my mom and dad. Um, I, I, got in, I got into some trouble in, in high school and whatnot, but I wouldn't lie to them. And they knew I wouldn't lie to them. Um, and I knew I wouldn't lie to him, which meant there were, there was times where there was a line and, uh, okay, I crossed that line. Um, but then there was other lines I could have crossed where it was like, absolutely not. Cause I can't, if I can't lie to my parents and I can't admit that I did that, well then I can't do it. Um, so reward honesty with trust and reward maturity with freedom. And so um, there, there were times where when my kids demonstrated uh, the level of maturity required, plus I knew the trust, then I would start to let them to do additional things to include things that maybe their friends couldn't do. Uh, now, here, the, here's one area where I, I get we, I've gotten crap from so many people before on this, and I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care. And that is, you don't let your kids date? No. Well, when can they date? When they're 18. Why, why can they date then? Well, because they're adults at that point, but even then there's going to be boundaries with respect to what they can do in my home. And I've had so many people, so many people tell me, well, was that, was that a rule for you when you were growing up? No. Well, don't you think that's a little hypocritical? First of all, no, because I didn't, you know, I was the one setting the rules for myself. myself. (laughs) Secondly, wouldn't care if it was because my job as a parent is not to have you experience all the stupid decisions I made. So you can have the same experience. My job as a parent is to help you navigate things based off of the experience of someone who has already been down that path so that you can make better decisions. I don't understand that criticism. Oh, it's someone in here goes dating is practicing for divorce. 
100 awesome. dude dude that's wow. a coffee mug that's a coffee yeah. mug um, <laughs> I, I, I yeah i don't understand that criticism isn't that hypocritical i brought this up in a previous show um episode i, I think a couple months ago about parenting and i i mentioned you know i'm not a parent but I, I was a kid once and I had parents and I can tell you the goal of parenting, anybody should be able to know this. Anybody that, that, that was a kid one should be able to know this. The goal of parenting is to raise children that are going to become better than you were. Well, that's true. But some people will say, okay, but how can they do that? You, you just said you have to create situations where they have to overcome challenges and adversity. Isn't this a part of it? Society's doing that already because they destroyed the dating market. Just <laughs> want to say. Well, here's what it's you guys. I don't think it's junior high and and early high school and stuff is just not the time. Think about how insecure you already are in that age range. And then it's you don't even have to be in love, you guys, for it to hurt to be dumped. Yeah. And someone's going to get hurt in this situation. And even if it's like this amicable thing and and the whole deal there is still pain involved in the idea of knowing that you are no longer preferred. You're no longer who the person prefers to spend the most time with. Well, why? And it makes you question a bunch of stuff. And the whole thing is, is, well, perhaps you were never meant to be doing that in the first place and you just aren't each other's type of person. Yeah. And now you realize that. The thing is, is Nick always like in, in high school always had this, um, standard. He would not date people that he couldn't see a future with, which meant he didn't date very many people. And, um, and like he, he even had one, um, situation when he was, it was a little before Nick and I ended up together. Um, maybe what was it like a year before? I think it was a year and, and a half he too. was spending a lot of time with this one girl um, in high school. This was Nick and I were just friends at this time. Um, he was spending a lot of time because they were in yearbook together and the whole deal. And just that time maybe made them start forming an attachment. And he felt really, really awful because um, even though there was sort of an attachment formed, he did not see a future and he had to be, he had to say so. And it was really, it hurt her and it hurt, you know, him to have to say so. Well, I, and, I, I felt like a jerk because I, at, at some point, you know, I, I was flirting to a degree that, you know, was a little bit leading on and things mm -hmm. like that. And it was like, you know what, this is, I'm being dishonorable because what I'm doing is, you know, I, I'm saying I enjoy this, uh, you know, attention and, 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 great person. Like I really did. I mean, like her and the whole deal. Yeah, like as people as, like attention. Yeah. And, and, and she was a wonderful, wonderful person. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it was like, like I, I knew that we, we probably weren't going to go anywhere farther than that. And so what I was doing right there is, is, you know, it was kind of egotistical and narcissistic as though I like this attention. So I'm going to foster it even though, and, and, and that's the thing is that people will look at this. Well, this is just dating. It's just fun. It's just, no, it isn't. You you're, don't you're, use each you're other you're that way. You're messing with people's, you're messing with people's emotions. You're messing with their hearts in an inappropriate way, in a way that you are not physically, emotionally, or spiritually mature enough to deal with. And so what I, what I tell people on distinguishing between what are, what are challenges and adversities and experiences your kids need to have versus here, here's what I go down to. Here's the threshold. On this side, there are bumps, bruises, and scratches. And on this side, there are scars. Yeah. Right? 
go out here and in, 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 in the world of bumps, bruises, and scratches, when I can trust you and you've demonstrated maturity, sometimes you're going to bump into the real world and you're going to get one of those. But I'm there to supposed, you're not supposed to leave your childhood with a bunch of scars that are going to be with you forever. And, and one, of the, one of the biggest ones are the emotional scars, especially when you allow kids to get physical too early on because one of the biggest motivations now is that kid is being taught that this is all just a part of your expression and a part of your experience and a part of growing up. Bull, that is one of the biggest lies that children have been told by adults who made stupid decisions who want to feel like it's normal. They it wasn't normal. About you screwed up. Decisions. You screwed up. You made a bad decision. You got hurt. You hurt somebody else. And now instead of using that wisdom to help your child navigate it so it doesn't happen to them, you're pushing them into it so you can feel better about your decisions. That's garbage. That is one of the worst things you could possibly do to your children. And it makes me want to slap the crap out of a parent when I see him doing it. So here's what I'll say. It is perfectly appropriate to allow your kids to be able to form like friendships. And of course, there's going to be times where they, they feel, they feel more emotional commitment to one person, maybe than somebody else. They can see somebody that they see attributes or they're attracted to them or whatnot. One of the things that I did with my children, all three of them, because there's another thing dads always screw up on. Like, I'm going to protect my little girl, but I'm going to tell my son to go out there and just have a good time as long as you wear a condom. That's crap. You've just told all your kids that the rules are arbitrary, that they're sexist, and that they don't hurt them equally. And they do. They do. But I will tell you this much. The first time my little girl came to me and had a little boy that liked her, my response as a dad was like, I'm not going to get my shotgun or I'll beat him up. That was not my response. I was like, sweetheart, let me tell you something. You know, you know, you know you're not allowed to date right now. Yeah, daddy, I know that. I said, do you know why? And she goes, because it, it, you know, it would be better to wait. I said, that that's true, sweetheart. But, but here's, here's what I want you to understand. I said, I, I love your, I love your mommy, right? We, we have a, we have a great marriage. We have a great relationship. I want you to have that. I, I am not the daddy that never wants his little girl to get married. No, I want you to, because I want you to have the same sort of amazing relationship that I have with mommy. I want to be a grandpa one day. I want you to experience all of that. And you know what? Any boy that shows an interest in you tells me right off the bat that he, he he's seeing something. There's something about him that, that is getting it right. But sweetheart, one day you're going to meet the boy that, you know, you want to marry. And the thing that you need to think about is, how much do you want to have to explain to him about experiences that you had? And I said the same thing to my son. How much, how much do you want to explain to that girl that is just so wonderful and has just changed her world upside down? How much do you want to have to explain to them about all the things that you did before with a bunch of people that you kind of knew it wasn't going to be the one? Now, I say that, and a lot of people, they just feel that in their gut, right? And I get it. But it's my job to make sure that my children are equipped to be able to set them up for success within relationships as good as possible. My oldest daughter is now engaged, and I'll tell you what, she's engaged to a great guy. I could, I, I, there, there is no greater blessing to a father than to give your permission to a young man that is going to marry your daughter because you are convinced he is going to lead spiritually. He is going to, he has been, he has been emotionally respectful of your daughter. He has been physically respectful of your daughter. And, and she has been emotionally and physically respectful of him as well, as well as herself. But that starts with letting them know, not just don't do these things because it's wrong or because it can hurt you. It's like, no, don't do these things because it's robbing you of something that's even better down the road. Or, or at the very least, it's making, you, it's making it harder for you to attain it. It's giving you more things that you're going to have to overcome in that relationship. That's not to say you can't overcome it. But why? Why, why would you want to? 
And, and what I found so far with my kids is, is that because parents are baffled. They're like, you, your kids don't, oh, oh, yo, you don't think they're dating. They're dating. No, they aren't. No, they aren't. I, I know because I talk to all three of my kids regularly. Or the ones that are like, oh, your daughter's totally probably having sex with that guy. Oh, yeah. blah, first, blah, first of all, I, when people tell me that. I hate when people do that. People tell me that and they think they can just say that to me as if that's not like horribly insulting of my daughter. Um, so I, I, look, I'll just, I'll just put it this way. That, that is one area where, again, helping your kids navigate that and giving them something to look forward to that is not only beautiful and, and incredible, but, but pure. That's a wonderful thing. And that, that is one of our responsibilities as parents. And I, and I will say this, I get told all the time, well, that's archaic or that's puritanical or that's whatever else. Don't care. Do not care because I have, I have seen the success I've seen what that produces in my own life and my own marriage. And I, and I'm now getting to see what it's produced in, in my older daughter's life. Um, and, and, and again, I always, the people that always talk the loudest crap to me are also the ones wondering why their children constantly find themselves in these emotionally damaging, sometimes physically damaging relationships at a young age. And then they want to sit here and tell me I'm doing it wrong. No, sorry. Yeah. I don't care what book you read. I'm seeing the results. And on the other side of that too, our kids, as they have grown up through this and had various friends in their lives who didn't have the same type of rules or convictions, like the kids maybe didn't have the same convictions that Lily had or Luke had or whatever. And, um, and neither did their parents on this level. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where our kids then are able to see the outworkings of those decisions and be really turned off by it. Like, I, I don't want to be like this girl that's all giddy over every single boy and boy crazy and all this stuff. And then also, you know, sometimes our girls have been there to help their friends pick up the pieces after being shattered by a boy. Yeah. And then shattered by the next boy and then shattered by the next boy. And that's the thing. And that's, that's like, they have watched this happen over and over and over again with some of their um, acquaintances and friends. And, and every time the girls, our daughters will be like, you need to work on you. You need to just work on, on your own life and not be focused on the boys and, and maybe don't date for a while or whatever, or you need to like, shut that relationship down and don't let him message you anymore, block him or something like that. And inevitably they will never take the good advice and they will always wind themselves back up into that horrible position again, because it's like this vicious loop cycle and our daughters are able to see it and, and go, I, I don't want that for my life. And so we've seen the outworkings on both sides of it. Yeah. And it's it, one side's really not pretty. Je Jeff asked a really important question here. Suppose you do come out of childhood with scars. How do you suggest someone heal from that? Oh yeah. All right. So that's, that's an excellent, that's an excellent question because I think most of us do right. And, and even if as a parent, you've done everything you possibly can to prevent those scars from taking place. Sometimes, sometimes things happen that you weren't able to control and, and, and it just takes place. The, the people that I have seen, um, that have been able to come out of that, come out of those like really just awful things that happened to them as children that never should have happened to them uh, beyond their control. And, and this is why this is such an important conversation for what we're dealing with right now with this struggle for identity within culture. The people that I've seen come out of childhood with scars that have uh, have have healed and have turned something 
that was intended for evil or shame, and they have, they have turned that experience into something that made them stronger and more resilient, are the ones that don't question the source of their identity. Um, and, and I will tell you, I think one of, one person already commented this. I, I'm not trying to give you a a Sunday school answer of you know just like Jesus. But I, I, I will tell you this, and I would ask you to consider it. Um, the, the people that I know that I'm, I'm very close to that have, have come out of scars, their identity is sealed in who God says they are, not who everybody else says they are, not the sum total of experiences they had no control over. Um, and, and being rooted in that identity has allowed them to look at, at horrible things that happened in the past and say that there is something that can come from this um, where it should have never happened. This is not about justifying what happened. Um, it, it is more about saying, but I will use what happened in order to make sure something doesn't happen to my kids. Or I will use that awareness to make sure that I navigate more, more in a way that is careful for my kids. I, I will use that experience in such a way because it doesn't define me. It, it is a scar I carry, but it is not. Do not make your scars your identity. That's what it comes down to. I, I see so many people doing that now. They think that if they take their scars and they turn it into an identity, they'll take ownership of their identity. No, you don't. You let the scars take ownership of you. Win your identity. And, and I say this very person, when your identity is rooted in Christ, then there will be times where there are bruises, there will be times where there are scars. Believe me, I know what that feels like. But they don't define you. They don't define you. And, and, I, and I think that that is the, the best possible advice I could, I could possibly give, is when, when, you're, when you're solidified in that, and then you're able to look forward as, okay, I will use my experiences to turn, some, again, something that was intended for evil or something that was intended for shame, I'm going to turn this into something that I can then use to bring something, to, to help somebody else through that process. Um, I, I think, again, I, I, that's the best answer I can give. It's the best answer I can um, give. Nick, I, I have a question yeah. that I, I think is actually pretty, pretty important for a lot of people in my generation and younger, which is kind of the opposite of what we were talking about before with, with like dating and relationships. We've had episodes before talking about the rise in loneliness, especially with young men, but, but across both, both sexes and the breakdown of the family, people aren't getting married anymore. People aren't going out and talking to other people. They're not, they're not dating. That's, that's actually the, the thing. And so when you guys keep bringing up this whole, well, we have this rule, no dating until 18 and everybody's yeah. so shocked about it. I'm sitting yeah. here like, that's not shocking at all because nobody's dating anymore anyway. And, well, that, that's and the, what, what people are doing is hooking up. Yes. They're hooking up, yeah. but, but nobody is, it's, it's like 30% of men under the age of 30 are virgins and that's rising. Men have dropped out of the, I mean, dropped out of society altogether in some ways. We've done an episode on that late last year. Like, there's so many men that are checking out and there's so many women that they're now getting into their mid to late twenties and they're upset about the fact that they haven't been able to settle down with somebody and you know, body counts are rising for a lot of those people. And yeah. so like the dating market as a whole is just totally broken. Yeah. We have these, these Prado distributions where women are basically being told to adopt the, the, worst aspects of of masculinity that had historically existed and I, I said it before that like women are being raised to be like men in a terrible way and men are being raised to be like women in a terrible way where 
and and in in terms of dating and relationships, I feel like that that has just totally destroyed it. So I don't really think the issue is stopping your kids from from dating as teenagers until they become adults. I think the issue is more how do you how do you raise your kids to develop healthy relationships, not just in a sexual yeah. nature when they get older and become adults, but just in general, because I don't think that people are forming friendships. There there was a story that came out. We haven't had it pulled up, but it just came to my head. There was a story that came out that showed something like one in four people in Gen Z say they literally have no friends, no yeah. friends. Yeah. That That's unheard of historically. Like the, 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 people are just becoming lonely. I'm not really lonely. seeing that. That's I'm I totally feel, seeing that. I feel Tina. like maybe by example I, is probably the best way. I, this is like, a generational divide here. I feel like no, it's not because it I have kids is. and they all have big friend groups. You're, so it's an exception. That's well, an okay. Exception okay, to let's the let's 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 not fight over okay. You know whose experience is more valid. <laughs> here, here's what I will say: to the extent that more and more people are finding themselves not having friends, not finding healthy relationships, and whatnot, what I have seen take place on social media is the two camps form, right? The feminist camp and then the all women suck camp, right? Like that's the, these yeah. are the two camps that I seem for. And, and what I, what I look at is that both camps are bringing up certain aspects, which are legitimate, right? But then they're prescribing things which are horrible. They're, they're prescribing things which actually exacerbate the problems that are being addressed as opposed to resolving them. Now, here's the only thing I can tell you. I think one of the things that has made it easier to exist within these camps, to, to, I mean, social media is one of them. You have the ability to interact digitally without actually being in the same place with a person. And, and that, that, add, that usually adds a degree of anonymity and let's say false courage. Oh yeah, it's one, you can look at our chat sometimes and see that. that. That doesn't exist when you're actually talking with somebody in person. I've had people say to things to me online that I can promise you they would never say to my face. Right. So that that's part of it. it. It's about navigating interpersonal situations beyond the digital. The the other thing that I think is damaging it and I and I I'm sorry, this is just a fact, porn. And the reason and that's not just for men. We always think this is a male problem, and it's predominantly a male problem, but it has increasingly become a female problem as well. So now what we're talking about is we have two forms of, of interaction. We have just like the the friendship style interaction or just the general like interaction of commerce or things like that, which can all be done online now, right? And then increasingly, sexual interaction is now moving to an online environment as well. And so what it is is that th there's this false notion that we've been able to supplant genuine interpersonal communication with the digital. And, and what's happening is the people that are adopting that are, are finding that this isn't fulfilling. But you know what it is? Super easy. It is super easy. And one of the things, one of the, one of the things about human nature is that we are trying to get to an end state with as little effort as possible. And the internet has provided that. The internet has, well, the it's, it's provided traditional social relations. It's not even traditional, genuine. What it is, well, is it, it's providing, <laughs> well, no, no, it, it, it's providing artificial, right? It, it's, so what it's doing is that it may be giving you that, you know, whatever that serotonin hit, right? But what people are finding is that it, it, it's not complete. It's, it's vacuous. It's empty at the end of the day. And then what ends up happening is there becomes an obsession with it because it's the only source that you can get that hit. Right. And so you need more of it and you need varying degrees of it and you need different types of interactions with it. And, and more and more of it actually makes you less capable of engaging in the sort of genuine interpersonal relations 
that, that are the only way to get what you really want. And so the, the thing that I would say for, for anybody that's really struggling with that is that you, you, there's, there's got to be a point where you put aside the digital, not because the digital is in and of itself wrong. I will say that I do believe that the porn or, or random sex is in and of itself wrong. I just believe that. I know we got some people in the jacks that disagree with that. Sorry, I disagree. It's wrong. It's wrong in part for, I think, moral reasons based off of my religious convictions, but I think it's also wrong when we look at the, the manifestations of it. Whenever I hear this, well, it can be done in a respectful way or it can be done in, in moderation. No, it can't. It's, it's going to be bad. So the question is, if we want to overcome that as a society, we have a lot of men that are looking at it now going, yeah, but it's different when I have to do it because now I'm going into a field where so many people have bought into this that it's harder. Yep. Here, here's what I want to say. To, to all the men, to all the women out there that are looking at this, that, that watch a combination of stuff on maybe like the left-wing feminism stuff versus the guys that are watching stuff maybe on the manosphere stuff. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. I, I completely agree um, and, and feel, feel genuine sympathy toward the difficulty associated with going out there and finding someone and having meaningful relationships and, and finding a wife or a husband or whatever it is I, I genuinely, I, I agree with you. It has become more difficult than it was when, when I was in my 20s. I agree. The problem is the answer's the same, right? I, I think people are, are so if, if, you're, if what you're saying is, is that this is unjust, I agree. But the answer is not pointing out that it's unjust. The answer is seeking the just answer seeking the true answer, right? And that is going to take sacrifice and it's going to take effort, right? This is the whole thing with, you know, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, bad times create strong men, blah, 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 right? The whole deal. Again, the strong men have to decide to be strong men in times where they shouldn't have to be, right? They can sit there and complain about how unjust it is, or they can figure out what they need to do to improve it. And, and, it, and it's perfectly okay to look back and say, well, they had it easier then, but we got it tougher now, so let's buck up. But I will tell you this. <laughs> bad times do not just create strong men. Bad times also create weak men. They're the ones that in the midst of the bad times decided that they weren't going to rise to the occasion. They were instead going to complain about how everybody else had it easier than they did. And you will never get out of the bad times unless you allow it to turn you into the strong man. And so... That that's and and again, I don't mean that flippantly. I I want to understand that I hear and I acknowledge the problem, and and I hear and acknowledge that it's largely the fault of generations that came before you, not yours. But this is the time you've been given, so learn from it, rise above, and do better than they did. Because quite frankly, your kids, your grandkids, society as a whole, they're absolutely depending on you to be able to do it. So Nick, I have to read this off because chat's asking me to do it. I feel guilty for it because this is a straw man. I promise I didn't. I didn't. This is not a paid actor. <laughs> Jacob Frank says, anti-porn based on religion? Are you anti-learning too? And then he follows up with, porn is educational. If you pay attention to I promise this is not oh paid actor. <laughs> porn is educational if you pay attention to it. It also keeps young men who want to avoid unwanted pregnancy from making poor decisions. I hesitated to read this off because I thought this was too easy to, to just destroy. But I asked the chat, should I read this off to Nick? And, and everybody was like, do it. So Nick, do you want to take a shot at that? So, it so the, the, the underlying premise of the question is, 
if you're anti-porn, then you're anti-education because porn can be educational, right? That's okay, great. Yeah, that's basically his argument. So I, I, I want you to think about all of the other things that you could do in life that would make you, because, because there's, so for instance, um, if you, if you uh, robbed a bank and you went through the process of, of learning everything you needed to do to rob a bank, and the immediate benefit of robbing that bank was that you you got education for the best ways to rob a bank. Plus, you got the money that you temporarily stole. Oh, but but then you got arrested and now you spend the rest of your life in jail because it turns out that that was a horribly immoral decision that had a whole bunch of negative consequences as a result to it. It would be absurd for anyone to suggest, oh, so you're against education, you're against you're against you know temporary benefit as a result of engaging in this particular activity. No, I, I believe that there is such a thing as objective morality. And I believe that you can learn you can learn important lessons from doing horrible things. I don't think you should do the horrible things to learn those lessons, right? This whole idea that you 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 can learn stuff from porn, yeah. And I think what you'll learn is is, is a very uh, bad way to interact with the opposite sex. I think uh, it also teaches you to be a consumer. Yeah, it teaches you to only be a consumer and not to be a pleaser. Because if you think that those women are all having a great old time and getting to their conclusion as they should, you are totally like believing the make-believe. This dude is getting wait, wait, dragged wait a in second. the comments. Wait, wait a second. Does, does it said porn is educational. It demonstrates what not to do in significant relationships that you would like to keep. Here, no, but listen, here's here's what I would say because this this is an argument that I hear He sometimes. had a second, by the way, I, I don't mean to um, interrupt, but, but he had a second point. Yeah. About how oh well this keeps men away from doing things and creating unwanted pregnancies. Okay, here, here's 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 what I will tell you is that okay, if these theories were true, then we wouldn't be dealing with the sort of crises that we are right now, right? We we just wouldn't like it. It's not as if this theory of pornography has not played out within society. I would argue that it has played out and it is currently playing out, and people are not happy with it. So just on a on a on an existential framework. On, a, on an empirical framework, I would say that this, this is not producing the sort of results that we want. Secondly, I, I would think it's, it's a very bad uh, tendency to say, to say here's a negative outworking of this particular type of activity. So we're going to give you a different negative activity in order to, to curtail the one that we think is worse. So, Brian Betts actually says, um, do you, he, he's trying to frame up the question a little bit better for the other guy. Um, he said, uh, do you not believe that it, it is a benefit? Oh, hold on. No, I see it. He goes, uh, do you not believe it is benefit for a young man to use porn to subdue urges? To but subdue re or yeah. urges. And what I want to say in addressing to subdue. And, and he even says to his, to Brian's credit, he says, but reality is there are other ways. That's of what course Brian there's says. other yeah. ways. But the reason why, like, do we say that about anything else? Would you say that about child porn? Every child predator, what do they do before they ever infract? They try to find child porn to subdue their urges. It doesn't work. All it does is feed it. It feeds the machine. I mean, look at the scientific side of this. They talk about, you know, these little neurons in your brain and the dendrites and things like that that are firing off. And, and the fact that porn creates a super highway in your brain for this. And it's like, it's like a, a glitch so they can't do the workup anymore. And it causes them to all... like. So many of these guys end up with ED. So if you want ED, go ahead. 
do it. And, and that's what I'm saying is they oversensitize themselves to the point where a woman can't really satisfy them anymore. And they got to get kinkier and kinkier and kinkier and weirder and weirder. And then they're watching snuff films. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, it all just compiles on itself and gets worse and worse and worse. And it's because it's an, it, it feeds that sort of addictive quality of dopamine in the system and it's an unnatural level. And so you won't get the right amount of dopamine when you're with a real woman. And then guess what? They're also teaching you techniques that actually don't work and are ridiculous and make you think that, oh yeah, I'm really pleasing this woman. When in reality, women have never been less pleased in their sex lives than today. Now, so there yeah, you go. Yeah, I think I think when you're the, not the, me, I'm totally happy. Oh my god! Sorry. The, the idea. This the is idea. an episode about children. <laughs> the, the idea is when when you're when you're replacing the genuine with something that is artificial, and that's what this is. You're replacing it with something that's artificial. You're, you're not, and it's not just artificial, but in many cases, you know, there, there's problem within this industry as a whole. But then I would say that even if you have a case where you're just talking about consenting adults, you're still running into problems because I think it creates, I, I think it perverts the nature of what sexual interaction is supposed to be like. Now, some people will look at me like, well, Nick, I disagree with your Christian mores with respect, with respect to sexuality. Okay, great. You and I have two different truth claims. Your truth claim is, is that sex can be more promiscuous or can be a lot of things. My truth claim is that it's, it's meant for a very specific relationship. Okay. I've lived my life believing that. Um, so again, we, we can challenge each other's truth claims, but I, I would say that I believe that the empirical evidence overwhelmingly supports what I'm saying. Um, and, and I think that there's not only, you know, it's not just the empirical evidence. I think there's logical reasons for that as well. Because when when you're creating in your when you're creating in your mind an expectation that anytime you want to satisfy a particular urge, then the appropriate thing to do is to go watch two strangers, you know, in, engage in varying degrees of activity, right? And that's the way that you're gonna you're gonna address an urge, which in reality is is a desire for a, a hopefully a a, a healthy, um, emotionally stable relationship with another person, right? That that's ultimately what's going to feed that that urge in a positive a positive way versus feeding in a negative way. Now, if you're saying that, well, my gosh, it could be fed in a horrible way. So let's feed it in a less bad way, or we could just feed it in the good way. Right? Like, I, I, so I, I don't, I don't know what to say. Like, I, I don't think the standard should ever be, well, okay, let's, let's, let's move it from this over to this, especially when this is demonstrated that one, it never gets you here. And it's more likely to actually push you to the worst manifestation of it, not actually subdue the the more, you know, there's, there's no, there's no strength in nurturing and like indulging yourself in urges. You don't get stronger that way. You don't get better that way. All it is, is it's like, you're trying to keep the beast fed, you know, to a yeah. point where it doesn't completely starve and, and, and so that it doesn't come out and eat you. Well, so and and I kind of look at that and go, why, why can't you, strengthen yourself and build yourself and work up to being a better person and being a better man, being a better woman. Like that's what it's going to take. Well, And I'll say this to your point as well, about like, okay, what, what is the message for, you know, and we've kind of gone off what the original topic here was, but I'm, we're trying to follow the questions too. I, I really do think it is this idea that, um, you, you, you are going, you're going to have to overcome hurdles that I didn't have to overcome right at the same age group. All I can tell you is that the work that you will have to do to overcome the hurdles will also put you in a position 
Well, by the way, I wasn't thinking of just me. No, no, I was I, more I'm thinking just, of people like 10 years younger, 15 I, I'm, I'm years talking about the hurdles of society too, okay. right? Like, so that's what I'm, I'm talking about. So it's not just me. It's also a rhetorical. No, I, I know. That's <laughs> what I, that's what I mean. I'm saying you brought up the question. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, you're, you're 29, 29, 29. Yeah. I'm, I'm 43. Definitely not a kid anymore. All right. But so I, I'm more worried about, you know, somebody that's like 15 to 20. Yeah. Growing, entering adulthood, and and you you childhood. will you will never uh, let me put it this way. I don't think you will ever regret regret doing the hard work that you need to make yourself more spiritually, emotionally, physically, professionally formidable. Right? I don't That's think you. Why will, I'm going to start I, going I to the gym. I don't after think September. you will ever regret the work that you have to, to do that, and I think you will regret substituting that stuff for a bunch of meaningless online digital um, interaction combined with you know, trying to scratch an itch through, you know, pornography, which is again, just another, you know, digital artificial, um, counterfeit of the, of the genuine article. All right. So let me see, do we have any more questions here specifically with raising kids? Oh yeah. I got, I, um, there, there's one last, I know we question. got some on rumble and we got some on, on the MTA channel too. So go ahead. Oh, never mind. I'll wait until no, no, go, 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 go ahead and ask that one first. Cause, um, well, I, Actually, this is a good one from Lego Spartan. How do you prepare your child to be ready for debates over topics of immorality, negative political movements, and their beliefs? Do you have any fear for them going with any of those beliefs? That's a good question. It, it is. So one of the things that we, again, we did with our kids early on, obviously we had a lot of conversations with our kids. Like we never believed in this idea that there's two things you never discuss and that's religion and politics because those things are pretty important. So you, you better understand where you stand and you better understand why. And so an important thing for us, for our kids is again, whenever we saw them regurgitate something that we knew they had just heard from us, we would say, why, why do you think that? Mm -hmm. And then we would actually play, we would actually Go at it from the other perspective. Because we weren't trying to create parrots. We didn't want them to yeah. be chameleons and just be whatever everybody else was around them. So if they made some kind of like kind of flippant comment that we know that they had heard us say, we would go through the process of, okay, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Let's talk about it. what about this? What about that? And and, and inevitably sometimes, well, I heard you say it. Okay, but you need to understand why I said it, not just that I said it. And so we we believed in exposing them to to um, other ideas and whatnot when they were of an intellectual maturity to be able to think through that process, and it's another one of the reasons why it's so important to teach, excuse me, your kids ideas of critical thinking. Um, one of the things my my oldest daughter has had to do a lot is she consistently finds herself in situations based off of her profession, based off of her interests, where she's like the lone conservative in the room, and. One of the things that she loves to do is she asks people questions or she'll share experiences. And one of the things that she has learned and that she is much better than me a, a lot of the time is this idea that when you are talking to someone that has very, um, very deep feelings about something and you question them logically, they feel like their feelings are being invalidated. And so she doesn't lead right in with it. She she acknowledges their feelings. She asks them about their feelings. She asks them about their experiences. She shares her own experiences, which are then relevant based off of what they've told her. And then she's able to have a deeper conversation to where over time she has friends that do not share her religious beliefs, do not share her conservative beliefs, but constantly come to her for advice. Because she's so compassionate and they know her to look at things through a really... Uh, clear, logical lens. And, and because she is established, she is established up front that she loves and cares about them. Yeah. And she loves and cares about them so much that she will tell them the truth when everybody else is just reinforcing what they're saying. And so when they want an honest answer, they go to Lily. 
right? When they want an honest answer, when That's they're really cool. when they're really concerned, they go to her. And I and I got to tell you, I, I cannot take a great deal of credit for that because I I have been uh, you know by the nature of politics and what and I found myself in in very adversarial positions at times and and a lot of that's my fault I should do a better job of actually pulling back at times and asking questions now thankfully some of the experiences that I've shared with her and how we developed this were those times where I I, I actually pulled back and asked questions instead of just going for the jugular I think uh, just to push back on that just a little bit I think um, you are. The person she learned that from, Nick. I, I don't think that, I, I don't, yeah, there's a lot of fight in you. And usually I think that what it is, is you kind of, if you take the time to know where the person's coming from, it tamps down that fight pretty hard. You, you will, like, I feel like she did get this from you. But anyway, that's just me. Uh, well, I it doesn't. It, it does <laughs> because be you've always been the one that's been really, really good at asking the questions, and I'm the one over here like, no, that's wrong, and you're an <laughs> idiot, and here's why. You need both. But no, yeah. no, no, Nick's approach is fantastic because one of the the biggest not hurdles, always. <laughs> no, well, usually it's fantastic because one of the biggest hurdles that conservatives have is that we approach things analytically on so many fronts and. There's this old adage that, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And there's definitely, as corny as that sounds, there's there's a lot of truth to that. And when you consider that so much of our dialogue today is emotionally driven, as much as it might be frustrating, yeah, having the ability to confront things from the perspective that you just outlined right there mm-hmm. is ultimately how you, you know what it is? It's how you avoid the black pill ending that I keep talking about in so many of these episodes, yeah, yeah. right? The whole right wing, you know, loses its mind and you have the collapse of the dollar and you get the takeover and the fascist jackboots marching down the street and, <laughs> and, you know, just, just all of that stuff, right? If you want the white pill ending, that's how you get the white pill ending is, is the approach that people like Lily have taken and she got it from learning it from you. Well, so, I, I, I think it. I think there was a lot of things where she just did an excellent job of, of kind of taking she, – she did she, I think she does a very good job of separating the wheat from the chaff yeah. at times. coming. Steve's got a question that I really want to get to. And I would like to also answer that question too. Okay. So when I, you, Actually, I was going to defer to you. Okay. Uh, Steve, Nick, I have married a woman with two kids I love. My daughter is in high school, so she has not had my love and instruction for most of her life. Any advice, babe? Okay, so I'm going to give some advice on this because – um, I have a stepfather who is the man who, uh, like, I, I view him as the man who helped form who I am. Um, and he's, he's incredible. And I will tell you that um, one of the things as that daughter um, with my dad, even when I went through some of these, you know, harder times in my teen years and, and he, maybe he was worried about me or what, um, he didn't always just go through my mom. He would he would talk to me like let me just tell you side by side time. He would side by side with me do things like um he liked to refinish cars, like fix cars and and we would be out there sanding our fingerprints off, you know, like bondoing cars, like working on cars together. And he taught me to change my oil in my car and change my spark plugs and how to change a tire. Like he taught me all those things. And, um, and it's probably stuff girls don't typically like to do, but it's really important. And it's not just because you're teaching her skills, you're showing her that you love her, 
by spending the time to equip her. And so even if at the time she feels like it's not very fun, it gives you the opportunity to side by side, share insights of truth, share your advice about all kinds of other things. And it also gives you an opportunity to ask questions about what's going on in her mind. And so I would say, spend side by side time without a motive, like without the motivation of I'm going to preach at you a bunch of things. It's, it's that show her that she matters in your life and that you're willing to help her uh, gain skills that are going to help her in the future. And then also ask questions about what's happening in her mind. If she knows that you, that you are interested in what's going on inside of her mind, she's going to feel loved from that. And I think, um, you know, it may be kind of late in life, you know, I don't know how long you've been her, her stepdad, but daughters just need to know that they're loved and it doesn't have to necessarily be like, oh, I need to be hugged 57 times a day. And I need you to tell me you love me 50 times a day. No, it's, I need side by side time learning or or laughing together or joking around together, just spending time, whatever that looks like for you, um, and invest in that way, that will give you the foot in the door to say, hey, I noticed that X, Y, and Z is going on. How do you feel about that? Is there, is, do you want any help in this area? Can I share a story from my past about that's similar to this and how we got through it to help you through it. You know, there's a lot of ways to do this. And all of these things are things my dad did. And I'm telling you, I would not be who I am today if I did not have my stepdad to be a father figure for me. Cause my, my, um, my real dad, he was in my life, but it just was a really different situation. I won't go into all of that, but, and I loved him. Um, but my stepdad is the man who shaped me into who I am. So you have an opportunity and, and I think, uh, you know, you can make a massive difference. And that's for like all dads who have married into a step situation. You, you can make all the difference in the world. Hamilton, you got one? Yes, sir. Um, got a question here from Roya on Rumble. Roya, I apologize. It's taken us so long to get to it, but I wanted to hold this to the end. Uh, she, she has a comment and a question. I hope your kids will carry on your parenting legacy. Speaking of which, how can you make sure your kids continue on with your parenting legacy? I, I think that uh, kids are kind of, I think all of us are kind of hardwired to replicate what we experienced, which, which is why um, th that's not just a positive thing. That's a negative thing. You'll, you'll see a lot of, um, you'll see a lot of people that grew up in a particular situation that it's kind of their default when they don't know what to do. Um, they'll, they'll start off their life with, I will never do X, Y, and Z. And then when they're frustrated and they're tired and they're angry, they revert back to what they grew up with. And so the, the, the best thing that you can do is again, model your, your, <laughs> the lesson taught by example will always stick with someone better than the lesson taught purely with words. And so if their experience was one that they had, that they appreciated, that they enjoyed, that they learned from, that they find security in, then that is going to be their default when, when they're in a similar situation. Um, and, and they'll also have an opportunity to build on, on what, what you did right 
and, and to make it even better. So I, I think that really is the the initial answer. It, it's it's creating an environment that they want to replicate because they're probably nine times out of ten they replicate what they experience, whether they want to or not. But if you provide them an environment that they want to replicate, then the probability that they are going to just goes up exponentially. And so I, I I think that's that's an important component. I think also that there's there's a this I think is really Mark Driscoll talks about this. Pastor Mark and I think he's right. He goes, you know, when you're he goes, we have this saying that we talk about when your kids get married to someone else, they're adding to your family. And he's he's very adamant, like, no, they're making their own. And that doesn't mean you're not a part of it. And that doesn't mean it's not important. And that doesn't mean you can't love them and interact, but it's their family. And you need to allow them the space to be able to raise that family in such a way. And, and this is something too that was was one of the final points that we had on here as well is this idea of being the being the harbor in the storm. If you have established a relationship where you have you know, you you've built your kids up, they're they're confident in what they believe, they're confident in what they want to achieve. They go forward, they get married. You know, we we were very much involved with when 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 it's funny, my, my daughter's fiance, his name is Nick. And, um, they had dated for a while and he was always incredibly respectful. And there was always, you know, boundaries there still are because they're not married yet. But Nick came and talked to Tina and I, before he asked Lily to marry him, um, asked for our permission, not just our blessing. And I, I will say that part of the reason, the reason why he did that is because he's respectful. Um, the other reason why he did it is because he hadn't. It would have been the first question Lily would ask him. Did you ask my father? Did you ask my mother? Because, and that's not because we've, we've raised her in some sort of authoritarian nightmare. It, it's because we, we've built a relationship to where she wants to know what we think. She knows the decision is ultimately hers. She knows we can't stop her, but she wants to know what we think. And she made such a good choice. Yeah, that, oh gosh, like Nick and I knew. I mean, we used to talk. We'd go upstairs in the evening and like visit and talk about you know the day or whatever, and talk about how much we love him for her. Yeah. And um, and you we could just see so quickly that this was going. This was he was. I we were pretty positive the one for her, and um and. So it wasn't like pulling teeth to get us to give permission. Now, of course, we did ask some really hard questions. Oh, yeah, we did. And, um, but mainly because I think it's important for parents to know if there are any issues to be worked through before yeah. a marriage like that or anything where it's like, this is really bad and and she's going to need to know about this. Like basically um, informed consent you know, we need to know what are you getting into and is it something that you can overcome? Yeah. And so we asked all the hard questions. It's just, we knew him so well, we were pretty positive. We already knew the answers. And well, so I'm telling you, well, I, I think like, I am so happy about who yeah. Lily chose. Well, and, and to, and to your point about like, how do you, how do you get them to foster that? Um, chances are because of, of where Nick works and all, they're going to live fairly close to us. Now that that could be an invitation for a parent to constantly meddle in their kids' marriage, and then when they have kids, to meddle in the, how they raise their kids. I will tell you right now, we are absolutely determined to. They have to be able to have their space to work through that. Um, I, I I can tell you right now that if if you know I, I get a call, you know, and, and I and I and I 
I don't think I ever would. But if I get a call like, Daddy, you know, Nick made me mad because I'd be like, you need to talk about that with your husband, sweetheart. I mean, unless there was something really wrong. But again, full confidence, that's not going to be an issue. Same thing with the kids. Like, I, I want to, my gosh, I want to sit there and watch my grandkids and I want to spoil them a little bit. I want to do all those other things. But when they say, hey, when, when Lily and Nick say, you know, hey, you know, dad, mom, whatever, kids need to be in bed by eight. They're going into bed by eight because yeah, it's going to be like, dad, would you stop riling the kids up right before <laughs> bed? You know, that's going to be, but it, it's it going to be something where I need to respect that this is their establishment. And, and so here's what I would say. Your, your, your role is your role and responsibility. I think changes as a parent and the way that you assist them in developing their own um, establishment is by you, you are that you're that safe harbor in the storm that where when they want your advice or when they want to ask you about something, you can provide that and you can offer that, but you respect them enough to be able to go through that parent and make their own rules and make their own parameters. And then also respect that when you're watching their children or, or things of that nature. Uh, but it, it all starts from what you've, what you've modeled for them. I, I had a question right here. Um, Reb last question. Uh, I was 19 year old when I was born, wait, born with an illness, which shortens my height it makes my bones very weak. I want to have kids and there are surgery that makes sure my offspring do not get my illness. Should I listen that, that is a, that is a very deep question. Um, like I, I don't, there, there's one thing we're always cautioned about here. Like we're, we're generally not giving medical advice, financial advice, or legal advice. Here, here's what I would say. I, I think I, I don't know what the nature is of that surgery or, or what the probability is or whatnot. I think be careful with anything that potentially puts your health at significant risk. Uh, in order to do something. Um, but that, that is going to be one of those decisions that, that I think you're going to have to make through a lot of prayerful con consideration of what you want to do. And, and again, not having the details and certainly not having the medical expertise. I don't want to, I don't want to give you a definitive answer on do this or, or don't do this. I would just say that, you know, make sure that you're not doing anything that's, that's, putting yourself at significant risk. There's a lot of promises that we get sometimes with medical procedures that don't necessarily manifest themselves the way that they should. There's other things that can be absolutely life-changing and wonderful. You're going to need to do the proper research on that and then come to the conclusion on whether or not the risk versus the benefit you think is significant enough to, to do this. But because I completely understand the heart of saying, I have had to struggle through something. And if I do this, my kids potentially won't have to. There's a strong desire to want to want to be able to do that. So I would just say make sure that you make sure that you're confident in what the risks are associated with it, and that's something through prayerful consideration, a, a decision that you make. Uh, there's another one here by Steve. Uh, oh, can oh, I? Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, Nicole O question. Uh, she said, "Can you expand on the questions asked? What issues, experiences would put you on the fence?" Um, uh, let's see. If she individually and they as a couple would have to overcome. Okay. Okay. So basically when we gave permission to Nick, yeah. um, to Mary Lily, like what type of questions are there that we need to know whether or not they need to be either worked through or if they were like deal breakers? Yeah. Well, a lot of that would stem from, you know, do they have any like really unhealthy things that they are currently uh, not on top of, like they Unhealthy, haven't figured it out. Yeah. So uh, habits, addictions, beliefs, habits, addictions, beliefs. Is he, an, is the guy an alcoholic? What's his alcohol consumption? Like, does he have a really volatile relationship with his family? That's something that would have to be dealt with and worked out. Um, is he, does, is he addicted to porn and hiding it? That is something I've seen many, many marriages completely fall apart within the first couple of years because of discovering a porn addiction. And, and I'm telling you right now, Christian men, 
men that were supposed to be Christian. And, and increasingly Christian women. You know, with and and women who like like I I know of one where they waited to have sex um till marriage and the whole deal. The entire marriage imploded because of porn because he never revealed that. He never repented for it and even after it was revealed he tried to make excuses for it. I'm telling you that's that's one of the ones where I saw that unfold um with you know with some folks and I was I made a mental note at the time whenever a boy asks our daughter to marry him we are asking this question. Um and you know things like that those those are big um Addiction's a huge one, and then that can be substance abuse. You know, um, abuse in the family is is there. You know, things like that because if the if the family smacked each other around growing up, it's there's a good chance he might think it's okay to smack her around, and uh, that's a good way to get unalived over here. See, yeah. so. <laughs> Steve, there's a reason why I have guns and pigs. Anyway, Steve Daniels said, Nick, so my daughter doesn't show that confidence. She is not good at all with confrontation, even with me who is on her side. How do you change that? So here's one thing I, I also want to say. There's um, obviously people have different personality traits, right? Introversion, extroversion, things of that. I don't think we should get too caught up in this idea that, oh, I'm this or I'm that. And therefore I can't learn how to do these other things. However, a lot of times um, what, what more extroverted people identify as not being able to deal with, with confrontation is um, in, in some cases, not in all, but in some cases, just a very, very different way that they deal with confrontation. So sometimes people don't deal well with confrontation because the way that they've interacted with confrontation before has always put them on the losing end. Um, and, and so they, they've never developed, if you don't develop any victories in dealing with confrontation, your objective is going to be to simply avoid it at all costs. And so part of it is, is sometimes um, getting in conversations with someone uh, or with your children or whatnot, where you, you know how sometimes you kind of let your kids win? <laughs> um, I'm not saying to do this all the time, right? But there's, there's a certain amount of, of struggle or back and forth or, or you know, play or whatnot where they kind of learn that, hey, they can win. When they do a good job, they can win. And, and sometimes giving them that experience where it is very powerful when you tell your kids, you know what, that's a good point. That's a good, you're right. That's a good point. All of a sudden there, there was, there was some sort of struggle. There was some sort of question. They said something that was genuinely good and you rewarded them for it. That's a victory in confrontation. And so we, we used to, in the military, we used to call this confidence targets. When we would take it, when we were training an indigenous force to go out and do operations, and maybe they had very little training before that. We didn't go do the most complex four-story building hostage rescue with them that we possibly could, right? We, we took them on a mission that was pretty hard to screw up, all right? But what it did is when they got done with it, like, oh, we can do it. Like, yeah, now let's do something a little bit more complex, right? So that's what you do. You, you kind of build up. So it's the same thing when you're, when you're talking about preparing someone to be able to effectively deal with confrontation. If every time they engage in it, they get crushed, well, they're going to want to avoid it. Now, I will say that different people also are inclined to deal with confrontation differently. Some people are a little bit more gentle. Some people are a little bit more like upfront and let's go for it. What I would say is don't try to turn your method of dealing with confrontation might not be the ideal. It may be ideal for you and your personality type. It might not be the ideal for them and their personality type, right? Again, I, I go back to the, the uh, example of my daughter. I'm a little bit more on the nose upfront, right? Um, now I can, I can be a little bit more gentle and pull back, but it's not necessarily my initial inclination. 
had I had I looked at the way that she dealt with confrontation and said, oh, well, you're doing it wrong because it's not like how I do it, that would be problematic. So two things. One, identify the best way to deal with confrontation within kind of the natural personality that, that your daughter has, and then find ways that you can engage in stuff that are not like openly hostile, but there's a confrontational element. There's a question that needs to be answered. There's different ways that it can be answered. And when she offers a good solution, that's a great time to give someone a win. That's a, great, that's a great time to teach someone that when they engage, they can actually come out on top. They can actually win. But if they never experience that, then their natural inclination is going to be to just avoid it at all costs. All right. I think we had another question here. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm like going way down in the comments. I think <laughs> question, we probably... My daughter is 22. My son is 20. Her father is a drug addict and alcoholic who is very successful and also very verbally and emotionally abusive. He bought them cars and uh, no communications right now. How to fix. Okay. <laughs> Gosh, how to fix. Um, here, here's what I would say. I think kids pick up far faster than we think they do that um, material well-being is not the same as genuine, um, genuine affection and care. Now, at a time where, and, and you will see this, you will see people who engage in abusive activities who will try to make up for it uh, in other areas. So rather than actually deal with the verbal abuse or deal with the addictions or deal with anything else, they'll, they'll try to use the mechanism they do have, money or power, in order to try to win affection. And, and, it, and it always creates very, very bad relationships. So I don't know what you can do with respect to his behavior and what he's doing. All you can do is with respect to what your behavior is. Now, it, it, is, it is a lot of times um, damaging when um, estranged wives and husbands start trying to use the kids as leverage against one another. I will tell you that one of the things that I think my parents did excellently when, when they got a divorce at three, when I was three years old, when they got divorced, um, there really was never any history. There was times here and there, but no history that I can remember of them trying to use the children as leverage against one or the other. That was very important. I will say this. Um, there were times where financially one parent was in better shape than the others, or at least superficially. Um, if you find yourselves in a situation where again, someone is attempting to use material goods to, to win a relationship with someone, all I can say is that I don't think it ever really works. Now, if you try to interpose and say, well, that's all about this, or that's all about this, or that's all about, all of a sudden, now you're the one that's you're the bad guy. You're making yourself the bad guy. You're the bad guy because you're trashing gifts that they're giving that they want to receive. I, I think- they will, they will come to see the truth. They don't necessarily need- I, one of the things that I see moms do sometimes, and I see dads do it too, where they will really try to turn the kids like, your mother did this, she did that, she did this. Or your father did X, Y, and Z, and he's doing this and doing that. And he, and I just, I've watched that on both sides, and it never works out well for the parent who's pointing it out. No. That all of those things might be true. Yeah. All you can do is hope kind of talk to your kids about what they might notice or how things are going and how it makes them feel. And do you, you know, how do you feel about this or how do you feel about that? But try your best not to impose your feelings about it onto the kids because at some point you become the bad guy. I watched yeah. it happen with my aunt. I mean, like she made her kids feel like they were not allowed to love their dad. Yeah. And what that did is, I think to this day, one of the kids doesn't talk to her anymore. And let me tell you, the dad 
was doing really wrong things, but it was the mom who lost the kid. Why? Because she couldn't let them come to their own conclusion on it. And chances are they would have, they would have recognized what was going on. Um, and on their own. And, and so I see it all the time and it's very, very toxic. It causes the kids to feel like, like they're going to be in trouble if they like something the other parent did. I, I, and this is tough too, because the idea is, is, oh, there's some answer that can be given that will help you navigate this without difficulty. There isn't. Um, there, this is one of the biggest, this is one of the biggest um, tragedies about divorce, even though sometimes it can be justifiable is the tragedy is, is that there are always going to be problems with it. Sometimes you can look back and say, well, the, the nature of the marriage was so abusive or there was so much infidelity that it couldn't survive and so it had to break apart. And, and I, can, I can appreciate that, but it's not going to mean that there's not going to be other problems as a result of that. And so I, I would say, I, I think Tina's right. It, it, that was my experience as well, uh, dealing with multiple divorces in my family, was that the, the parent that essentially focused their attention on uh, making sure that we felt love and we felt safe with them and didn't try to deny us a relationship with the father, didn't try to, to tear him down or anything like that. That, that, that developed a great deal of respect for that parent. Now I will say this, there are going to be times where if the other parent is doing that, you're going to feel like you're at a competitive disadvantage because if you're not running them down, but they're running you down, well then at what point, especially if they can provide all these like financial things, what, well, well, at what point do you defend yourself? And the thing that I would say is that the, I, I believe this to be true. Um, I believe this to be true. And that's all I can tell you is what I believe to be true. I think the best evidence is in your conduct. Um, I think the best evidence is not in trying to, to disparage them. It's, it's to try, well, well, they said this about you. Well, sweetheart, that, that's, that's not true. But, you know, I, I, I want you to have a good relationship with your father. That's, that's a true statement. Now, it may mean that the father has to go quite a bit, right? But it's a true statement that you want him to have a good relationship. If the, if the father bought them something, don't, don't make the item that was purchased evidence of how much he doesn't really care because if he really cared, he'd do X, Y, and Z. Well, it, it looks through clarification like the father bought vehicles for the kids and now the kids aren't communicating with her. Oh. It's the other way. Okay, okay. So I, I, would, say on, I would say on that one, um, look, they're 22 and 20. They're also adults at this point and adults are going to make their adults are going to make their own decisions. And, and if they've decided that they're not talking to you because of something like that, and again, who knows, I, I don't know all the surrounding things, right? I just know this, this couple of pieces of evidence. I, I would say as a parent, you're, you're always, if I found myself in this situation, my, my desire would be to have a, a relationship with my children. It, it's not to correct their dad's behavior. That's not my responsibility anymore. Um, it's not to try to turn them against their father. That's not my responsibility either. My job, my job in that moment is I want to have a relationship with my kids. How do I do that? And, and I will do, I will do the, um, I will do the things that demonstrate love toward them. And that's what I will try to do. And I can do that without bringing him up, you know? So that, that would be the best, that, that would be, I think my response to that. And it would be difficult at times because obviously it, it is unjust for your children to cut off communication with you if it's simply because you can't provide the same material wealth that, that somebody else can. That's unjust. That's unfair. The question is, is what's your objective? If the objective is to, to maintain and, and care about that relationship, then that's what you focus on. And it doesn't mean that you have to try to you know, go into debt to provide the same. Not at all. Um, you know, in, in the midst of someone doing the wrong thing, you do the right thing. 
and, and I, I know that sounds overly simplistic and, and I certainly don't want to discount for a mega, the, the absolute, you know, mental and emotional anguish that you're probably going through from not only being denied that relationship, but also feeling like that, that it's incredibly unjust, but I don't know a better solution than, than to simply continuing to reach out, continuing to demonstrate that you care and not trying to make this a competition between you and him and never putting them in a position where it's a competition between you and them. Because eventually what, it, what usually ends up happening is children see through it over time. Even when, sometimes it's when they're adults, there's that moment where, you know, their affection was won over because of material things. And then, or, or maybe even because they, they were, you know, having poison about you put into their air. At some point they realize it. At some point they reveal themselves. At, at they some do. point they realize it and they usually come back and they are, they are all the more grateful for you that you never put them in that position. Um, but I, I can't tell you how long that's going to take. Yeah. Um, okay. We need to wrap it up. All right. I got, I, we got a really couple more. We got one more question. All right. Go. Is that from Lego or? No, I posted it. All right. Wait, let me go with Lego and then I'll go to questions. Legos. Last question from me, this video, I promise. What is the message uh, or what is the message lessons you want your kids to learn or gain from both you and your wife? Dude, that's, we would need a whole podcast. Yeah. I, the, the, the biggest, I think the biggest thing that, the, the thing that has always been the most important to us for our kids is their spiritual walk. And a lot of times people, people that don't share our faith will have issues with that. Well, how's that beneficial for me? Everybody has a worldview. Everybody. You, you can't get away from it. And at the foundation, at the starting point of that worldview is an element of faith, right? Because even if you say it's logic, even if you say it's science, even if you say it's love, even there's some element of faith, right? Which is, which is begging the question. And, our, our, our number one concern with that goes back to what we were saying earlier about dealing with scars and everything else. I firmly believe that if, if my children um, were building the foundation for their lives in the identity that they have in, in Christ and what that means for them with respect to the fact that they are, no matter what else happens in life, they are loved, they are beautifully, wonderfully created, and they have a special and unique purpose in their life that only they can fulfill. You, you start off your entire worldview with with conviction and belief in that, that it's your belief, not just something that was transferred to you by your parents, but it's your belief. The, the <laughs> I believe at first because it's true, but from just a, pract a purely practical standpoint, the, the power that sets you up with in the rest of your life that, no, 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 I have a purpose. I have meaning. I am loved. And there's going to be bad things that happen in this world. There's going to be bad things. It's no shock when it does. These people that teach their kids a version of Christianity that's the prosperity doctrine, that if they just do it all right, life's going to be rainbows and lollipops and they're going to be rich, that's heresy. We teach our kids that you're loved, you have meaning, you have purpose, but bad things are going to happen. Don't be surprised by that. Bad things are going to happen, but you've been equipped with what you need in order to challenge it, to be able to go through it and be able to become stronger and better as a result of the challenges. And at, at no point do any of those challenges affect you are loved, that you're beautifully wanted, created, and that you have a meaning and purpose in this life. And, and I, think that, um, I think that really equips people to be able to overcome the challenges they face. Christian right. has a question. It says, how do we raise our kids to know the government is covering up the truth about <laughs> UFOs? All right. Next podcast. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's, I listen, thought that this, was a good way to get a we, laugh we've at the got, We've got almost three hours on this, and in large part it was because doing my favorite thing on this podcast, which believe it or not Taking is questions. not just me, just us coming up with stuff, but you asking us questions because that tells us what you really want to talk about. And chances are, if you have the boldness to ask the question, there's 30 other people that are wondering about it. 
So thank you very much for the participation. I can't thank you enough. I want to thank again to Chris because Chris is the one that, that inspired us to have this episode and to have these discussions. I want to thank Lego. Thank you very much for the donation. Also, thank you for your questions. For those people that are wondering, maybe this is your first time engaging on a live uh, podcast, the questions make it more fun. The audience interaction makes it more fun. To Christian's question, how do you- We how do you were having a, an argument about this. How do, right how do you we... raise your kids to believe that the government is in fact covering up UFOs? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to answer that, and then we got, we're going to close out. There is a debate going on right now in the Making the Argument podcast on whether or not we should have a UFO episode based off of everything that's going on with the congressional hearing. So here's what I'm going to ask. Here's what I'm going to ask our audience to do. If you want to join our community chat, if you want to have some influence on future episodes, the best way to do that is to go on, join our community chat through circle. You got the links in, in the, uh, in the podcast here and go on, you introduce yourself and we have an area called episode ideas. And I, I would say probably 60% of our episodes now come from the, the ideas that we get within that, if not more, so if you think of that, then I just want you either on here on the chat, go on there and just say whether or not you, you agree with Christian on whether or not we need a dedicated UFO episode, because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a skeptic, not only of these whole hearings, but I'm a skeptic of whether or not this is a good idea for a podcast episode. You but, didn't even watch the hearings. But if you as the audience decide that you would like to see something like this, well, then maybe I will reconsider. Um, Ellen, thank you again as well. Oh, for, Hamilton for just posted it. <laughs> should we have an episode? Good I, I think Christian should pull the best clips of the hearing and we should do like back and forth. Yeah. If Christian wants to do this episode, then Christian can do all the work on the, on the outline. <laughs> all right. But like completing all of this and wrapping all hold, of this hold up. up real quick. Yeah. In circle, I, you can see it up here on the <laughs> screen. Now I just made a post. You can comment on this post under podcast and vote yes or no on whether or not we should do it. All right. So you can go right on there. It's on there. You can see what our, what the circle chat community looks like. It's been a good episode. It's been, it's been fun. I really appreciate the audience participation. I, I absolutely do. Um, here's the other thing. I'm just going to close out with this. Um, look, raising kids is incredibly difficult and now more than ever you're raising them within a society and a culture which tends to be very very hostile toward uh, Christian viewpoints religious viewpoints in general but I would say specifically Christian viewpoints definitely conservative viewpoints um, traditional concepts of masculinity femininity what marriage should look like um, you know just basic concepts of right and wrong and and it can seem very very overwhelming all I will say is that despite what so many people would have you believe about who is the greatest influencer on your children, study after study continues to show that it is still the parents. Any, and the, the parents that really try to make that effort to be involved in their, in their children's life um, have the ability to cut back against what we call these generational gaps where it's like mom and dad just don't understand because they grew up in a different time. Well, if you're growing up and, you, and you're, you're experiencing things with your children and, and, they, and you have these shared experiences between the two of you, I remember one of the things that, that my, my mother did that, was, that she was adamant about was that she wanted to create these little experiences that we had with her. Um, and it did. It provided this connection. It provided references. It provided stories. It provided memories that were special with her. Um, so many things like that, which seems so little, seems so trivial at times, can be so important on reinforcing to your kids that you believe the things that you believe, not just because you're the authority figure in the house, but because you believe them to be genuinely true and you want to set them up for success. And you realize that there's going to be times where you have to let them go out and experience certain things. And so you set those boundaries where it's like, you look, the first thing is we got to establish trust. I'm going to be honest with you. You're going to be honest with me. 
The second thing is there is such a thing as right and wrong. And the things that we're trying to do is not just to protect you from the wrong because it's wrong, but because the more wrong we protect you from, the more it'll be easy for you to see what the right thing is. Right, And then once they establish that trust, once they establish that maturity, once they start to demonstrate that they're learning the lessons that you teach them, you give them a little bit more, a little bit more rope to go out there, experience things. And again, what are you doing? Bumps, bruises, scratches, that happens. It's good for them, builds character. Scars, deep emotional, spiritual, physical scars, that's what you're trying to protect them from as kids because you're trying to allow them to be able to develop those own capabilities, that awareness, everything that they need to be able to successfully navigate life. And yes, they're going to bump into things, but your job as a parent is to prevent those, those major things from happening. But ultimately, ultimately, if you're raising your kids with a worldview where they know they are loved, right, that, they're, that, that there is a moral law and there's a moral law giver, and, and you're not it, right? But but your love, they were created for a purpose and that your job is to make sure that they have the ability to fulfill that purpose and that you're going to be there to help guide them. But as they get older, you're going to play, <laughs> you're going to go from driving the car, from sitting in the passenger seat, from sitting in the back seat, from kind of looking at the side and just always being there, being, being the harbor in the storm, um, but allowing them to go off and celebrating their victories and being for them uh, in their failures. Um, I think you're going to find that you raise children that are confident in the world that they're facing, no matter how bad it gets at times, uh, in part because they know they're loved and they know where home is. So I would encourage you, look for the opportunities to be able to do that. Hopefully some of the, the experiences that we shared today uh, are useful and helpful in that process. Once again, thank you for the suggestion for the show. Thank you for your interaction. We look forward to our next episode, which may or may not be about UFOs. <laughs> and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick. And once again, thank you for listening.